Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with my friend Nick Diggin Best, who's joining me here in the studio in Denver, and we're going to talk about some miscellaneous astrological topics and just catch up over the next hour or two. So, hey, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you in the studio for the first time. This is actually the first time I've seen you since 2016, I believe, right? Yeah, the ESAR conference in LA. Right. The famous ESAR conference right before the 2016 presidential election, which didn't go so well, but it was otherwise an okay conference. And yeah, um, yeah so you have actually been living in South Africa for like the past six six years years yeah. now yeah yeah even by the time of that conference i was already living there yeah right um but you and i go further back or we go way back to 2005 or so 2005 about march as i recall right and we met through again through myspace like patrick and i were talking last time he was here last month right. we met through myspace yeah we all met pretty much at the same time as i recall i might have met you a week or two before watson came along but it was this sort of golden age of MySpace astrology. Um, have we ever told the story of how we met? Should, should I go into the very origins? By all means. Okay. So, um, we really, I've, I have to go back to two people, um, Kelly Lee Phipps and a woman named Bonnie. Darn, I, I have her last name somewhere. I can't remember it off the top of my head. But the two of them were at a conference sometime around 2002, 2003. And they said to each other, you know, gee, it would be really great to have an, a, an org for young astrologers to help them sort of integrate into the astrology community. Mm. Um, and from there, Kelly recruited Moses Sirigar. Um, into this cause. And Moses, being the great organizer that he is, uh, brought me and a bunch of other people into the fold, many of whom uh, remain very good friends of mine today, but I met them through Moses. And um, along with Demetra George, this group of about uh, 10, 11 of us, we um, founded AYA, the Association for Young Astrologers. And um, Michelle Gould um, did all the the sort of paperwork to get us incorporated. We, you know, set us ourselves up as a proper org. Got all these, you know, mission statement and all the legalese worked out and all this, and we felt very proud of ourselves. And then we proceeded to do absolutely nothing <laughs> with the org. Um, and this is the beautiful thing, actually. Kelly and Bonnie, although they were the ones who sort of birthed the the idea of AYA, they weren't involved in the actual, for their own personal reasons, they weren't involved in the actual forming of the org. And Moses was our sort of president at that point. He was the guy leading the charge. But then he dropped out shortly after we actually got the thing started. He dropped out of the picture. Um, but this is the beautiful thing about the AYA is that it's it's always been this thing that just gets passed along. Like no one's ever just sort of tried to hold on to it, if you will. Yeah. I just um, celebrated the 10-year anniversary of the release of the first podcast episode like a week ago, and I went back and glanced at that first episode, and one of the pieces of news that I announced was that Austin had just taken over for me the presidency. Right. Yeah. I remember that because that was a 2012 at the um, 
the UAC conference in New Orleans. I remember very well the party that, that when we sort of announced it and, and I don't know poured champagne all over each other or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't remember that part. But no, I, maybe I'm making that part up. Yeah, um, it was like a fantasy. That yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, it, but it was that kind of moment. Um, so yeah, um, basically we. Um, we had this org and for a whole year, we just sat around and nothing happened with it. Mm -hmm. And then one day we got this really angry um, sounding email from some punk young kid out in Seattle, this guy going to Kepler College, who was complaining that, you know, AYA wasn't doing anything and, and uh, you know, they had started this org, but it was all talk and no action. And um, one or two people in our group were sort of offended by this kid. Um, you know, how dare this arrogant little schmuck, you know, speak up like this. And I said, no, 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 this is great. Let's make him president. <laughs> like if he, if he's not, he's right. He, we're not doing anything with it. Um, let's see what he can do. It's the classic response when you're being criticized. Let's see if you can do better. Right. And this, uh, arrogant, uh, young punk, uh, turned out to be you. And, um, but, you know, so once we sort of got over the awkwardness of, of, um, that exchange, I think pretty soon we did make you president of AYA and you did a lot more with it. You were the first one to actually do something with this structure that we had built. Yeah. I mean, eventually I became president. I think it was brought in or brought into the board at some point and then eventually sure. yeah. became president. But yeah. 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 That's yeah. Things snowballed from there. Um, and yeah, and once we got through that little bit of um, awkwardness, actually, we, we hit it off mm -hmm. uh, first online. And then, uh, so this would have been about March 2005. Um, and indeed, you know, and then through MySpace, uh, um, we sort of grew into a group of people, of young people who talked astrology on MySpace. And um, that's when. Uh, you know, teenage Patrick Watson, still in high school, uh, joined our fold. I was in my 30s at this point. I would have been 36. Uh, you were 20. Watson was about 17, something like that. Right. Um, and um, Bill Johnson, I was, I was in, I was staying in um, Cumberland, Maryland, with the Project Hindsight people at the time, and Bill Johnston from Project Hindsight and I. We're due to go out to Seattle for the uh, Norwalk conference that year in 2005 in May. And I mentioned to Bill, Bill had met you because he had gone and done some talk at Kepler. So Correct. he was sort of vaguely like you had had a conversation with him. And I had just started studying Hellenistic astrology just a few months earlier and re was really taken to it, was studying under Demetra. Right, right. Um, so Bill and I were due to go out to Norwalk and I mentioned to Bill, hey, you know, there's this um, arrogant young schmuck. <laughs> no, there's this, there's this really interesting young guy out there, uh, in Seattle who's studying at Kepler. Let's, uh, let's meet up with him while we're out there. Mm -hmm. So I remember very well, uh, Bill and I arranged to meet you at the, the astrology bookstore, right? Astrology. Oh, astrology at all. Astrology at all. Right. right. Uh, Greg Nalbandian store. I remember Greg was there. Mm. Um, and we met you and we went out for dinner and, um, the three of us sort of, you know, hit it off really well. And um, by the by the time that weekend was over, Bill had invited you to come stay with us in Cumberland. I think it was, I, I don't know if he invited me then, but you guys 
by the yeah, I guess it was by the end of the conference because yeah. then we went to the Northwest Astrology Conference, and then I remember um, hanging out with you guys all weekend. And then at, at the end of that, I was doing a delineation for somebody. I did actually Laura's daughter's birth chart, and I was applying some of these Hellenistic techniques that I'd been learning over the past several months to it. And Bill was standing behind me and saw, and I think it was at that. After that, at some point, that he said they were building a library at Project Hindsight, and if everyone wanted to come help work on it, that I was invited. Right, right. Um, so yeah, um, my part in this was really just in sort of reconnecting you and Bill. Like apart from the fact that you had met, just sort of drawing his attention to you. So this is the end of May because Norwax always at the end of May, and we arranged to meet you at the. ESAR conference, which was going to be in Chicago at the end of August that year. Hmm. So uh, Bill and I drove up from Cumberland. Oh, no, no, I think I met up with you. I came from Montreal. I'd, I'd gone home for the summer or something like that. But then I met up with Bill and you in Chicago at the conference. Hmm. And when that conference was over, the three of us drove to come back to Cumberland from Chicago. And that was the beginning of that. And for the next... Um, two years, you and I would basically be neighbors, and uh, our friendship grew from there. Um, and uh, we did a lot of studying together and uh, going out for Chinese food and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And a lot of like study sessions and applying techniques and you were building your databases mm -hmm. and stuff by that point. Right. Like pretty extensively. Yep. Yep. Um, and so that was that. Uh, you and I, in 2007, um, for our own reasons, we both uh, were ultimately compelled to leave Cumberland and return to our homes, but the friendship continued from there. Uh, you came back here to Denver. I went to Montreal. Um, and yeah, um, but we kept seeing each other all the time at conferences. And, and yeah, we, we maintained a pretty close bond through all that time. Yeah, I mean, you were. I was looking back, celebrating the ten-year anniversary of the first episode of the podcast, and you were on like episode three of the podcast, right? Yeah, right. yeah and yeah. as well as like episode ten or something like that was the Uranus USA episode and the release right. of your book, mm -hmm. and that's something I know we're going to talk about and return to today. Um, but yeah, it's been wild. You know, you were on a bunch of the early history of the podcast, like pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. I, I I seem to remember I was probably on more than twice in those early days. Oh yeah, I mean we've done like a Mars retrograde episode. We did a Venus retrograde episode. Right. We did a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Back in the early days when it was just an audio podcast, and um, yeah, yeah. So. Um, all that so cue all that going right up to October of 2016, and we're at that ESAR conference in LA, and that's the last time we were together in person. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly because at that point I had moved to uh, Cape Town and uh, was becoming engaged to my girlfriend, who I've since married, and um, yeah, and really only for that reason, just because we're living on opposite ends of the planet, we haven't been in the same room since then. Yeah, and the whole pandemic thing over the past two years, and also lack of astrology conferences or anything else. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but um, so that brings up a few things. I mean, one of them that's really funny about the orgs thing because I've noticed this recently as well. Um, it's really easy for people, especially younger, up and coming people, to view organizations as these like monolithic ivory tower, almost like structures from the outside, mm -hmm. and to not realize from the inside just 
you know how poorly run they tend to be or how much everyone's just like struggling to kind of do their best but working on a volunteer basis and it's really hard to understand what's going on inside an organization from the outside and how much some of these orgs are very much just um you know scraping by at, at any one time mm-hmm. um but it's an interesting almost generational thing or something that's good to experience like having the experience of being an outsider and like calling you know critiques from the outside versus like actually being involved in trying to organize something and and doing what that takes is a much different experience but it's a really important one i feel like for everyone to have so that they have some understanding of what it's like to attempt to like put something into action versus just critiquing it from the outside yeah yeah um i, I was i was never offended by your critique of aya because mm. a i mean I, I could only be offended if there was if you were lying or misrepresenting the situation but you were absolutely correct uh, we hadn't done anything with it we just we'd had this great idea and we'd made it and there was no follow-through so um that that's what I felt, and and this pattern was already establishing itself. That, <coughs> excuse me, um, that the AYA was this sort of rolling ball that uh, would get passed around. I mean, it had mm-hmm. already been, uh, it had already slipped out of the hands who of the people who conceived it. Uh, not that it was taken from them; it was just kept getting passed along. Right. So, um, but yeah, it probably helped you to to have the chance to get on the inside as opposed to just watching things from the outside. I mean, it's very easy to criticize things from the outside. So once you were inside, at least you, you had a sense of what needed to be done, what could be done, what couldn't be done. Right. Yeah. And just the limitations of what you can actually do. And actually, the, the limitations of even the amount of power that anybody inside an organization actually has to like exercise control or influence of things actually ends up being much more limited, I think, than you end up realizing from the outside before you've been in that sort of position. Yeah. Um, it's the classic conundrum of governing, I think. The more democratic the the, the organization, um, the slower things are and the, the more limited uh, they can be um, to, to sort of execute any, any plans or tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know the other side of that spectrum is to just have one dictator in charge of everything who might get more done just because they're uh, you know ruling by um, by themselves. But then you know you have a whole other set of problems with that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just funny to see f- other generations because now you know when I met you, I was the youngest astrologer you know forever at conferences for like quite sure. a while, yeah. uh, for years, and then now there's a whole. Patrick and I were talking about how there's a whole generation under us that's like ten or fifteen years younger, uh, since we're in our mid thirties at this point, and that was kind of your experience we were talking about yesterday with with me actually. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm sixteen years older than you. I'm uh, nineteen years older than Patrick. Um, it wasn't a problem for us to become friends. We, we, we all became pretty close, but, uh, it is funny now to see you guys in your thirties, like the age I was. So you can sort of fathom, um, the shoes I was wearing at the time. Uh, mind you, when I first got involved in astrology in the nineties, um, even though I was in my mid to late twenties, I was always the youngest, um, in any astrology class I took or, or, you know, uh, it was a long time. The first time I met an astrologer from my age group was probably Sam Reynolds because he and I both worked for the same astrology phone service. Um, so I met Sam before you, but um, 
you know, everyone else was younger. I mean, even Moses is six years younger than me. Okay, Kelly was three years younger, which isn't that much, but um, Kelly Lee Phipps, the great, late, great Kelly Lee Phipps, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it, it, that took a long time. I mean, that was, I was already, you know, nearing 10 years of astrology study by the time I was um, meeting all of them and meeting you. So, so what year, when did you start studying approximately? I read my first astrology book in January of 1995. Okay. So I was 26. Got know? it. Um, so just pre Saturn return? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it was a cold winter in Montreal and um, I was just um, hanging out at home, reading a lot of books and not going out much. Um, and uh, my roommate had a friend who came over and um, she was just talking about astrology. There had been all these. I had sort of friends of mine who would who had a sort of superficial interest in astrology. And then this friend of my roommates came over to my house, and she was talking about astrology. And I decided I wanted to read an astrology book. Um, and really, the only reason I did was so that I would know enough to tell my friends why they were being idiots for believing in all this nonsense. Mm -hmm. um, and this is actually a pretty common way for people to find their way into astrology. So, um, yeah, um, I came in as a total, you know, um, to, to even to call myself a skeptic would be mild. You know, I mean, I, I just I thought it was silliness, and and it wasn't until I started reading about it that I really understood. You know, oh, you don't just have a sun sign; you have a moon sign and a Mercury sign and all this stuff, mm -hmm. and. Um, as it happened, that first book I read had a little mini ephemeris in the back of it. Mm. And that was really the thing. The book itself didn't do too much for me. A lot of it had to do with like past lives and things like that. The, uh, concepts that still don't have much appeal for me. But the, it was the ephemeris and really sort of grasping this, this um, calendar slash clock quality that astrology has. This, this just as a means of... of um, measuring time that was very appealing to me. Um, before I got into astrology, I was always someone who had a real strong sense of, of chronology and the calendar. And, uh, you know, I was really into music. So if I knew the, the career of, of particular musicians I loved, I always understood like, you know, yes, they made this record in 1964 or, you know, so-and-so died in 1967 or whatever would happen in their lives. And I was very, very aware of, uh, of chronology. And so that's what, that was the appeal for astrology to me. It was just a, a, a way to, to do what I was already doing, but have this, um, really amazing, elaborate calendar system to, uh, to follow. Um, and within a few months of reading my first book, I, I, I remember it being not more than two or three months after that reading that first book in January of 1995, I, I decided, okay, this is really something I want to spend my whole life studying mm. and resolved to become a professional astrologer really because, well, that's a way I can always stay involved in studying it. You know, um, I didn't become a professional astrologer to be a professional astrologer. I became a professional astrologer so that I could keep being an amateur astrologer, i.e. someone who does it out of love, um, which I think is, you know, it's important. It's like music or art or whatever. It's, it's fine to go into the business, but you always want to first and foremost 
love it. You know? Yeah. Well, and that's something that's unique about most astrologers is they do get into do it, doing it professionally most of the time out of their love for it and desire to do it as much as they can or do it all the time. Yeah. And that's often usually the driving force between starting to do consultations and everything else. Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you mind if I show your chart? No, I don't mind. Um, here's the chart for the audio listeners. So you were born August 14th, 1968 at 526 AM in Montreal, Canada, uh, ascendant at 15 Leo, sun at 21 Leo, Mercury at 28 of Leo and Mars at five Leo. Yeah. Then moon is conjunct the midheaven at two Taurus, moon is at two Taurus, midheavens at three, Saturn at 25 Aries in the ninth whole sign house, Venus and Jupiter in Virgo at six and 10 degrees and Pluto and Uranus at 21 and 27 Virgo in the same sign. And then Neptune at 23 Scorpio in the fourth whole sign house. Mm -hmm. And finally the North node at 10 degrees of Aries in the ninth house. Yeah. So this was preset. So Saturn was probably going through Pisces then when yeah, yeah. Saturn was in Pisces. Um, there was a um, a Venus Jupiter conjunction similar to my natal one in Sagittarius, and there was a Mars retrograde in Leo. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we were just coming out of a Venus retrograde in Scorpio. Um, Right. Venus was now in Sagittarius, having been retrograde in Scorpio just the previous autumn. Um, so yeah, uh, a recurrence of my Venus Jupiter um, and, uh, and a Mars retrograde in my uh, first house. So what was the astrology scene like in the late 90s? Because you ended up being in New York and studying yeah. astrology in New York in the late 90s, basically, right? Yeah. Um, so I... So I studied astrology. I just read every book I could get my hands on between 95 and 97. Um, you know, there were, there were some really good used bookstores in my neighborhood in those days. And someone was selling off a pretty good collection of astrology books. So I was pretty lucky. Mm. I read a lot in those first two years. Um, and very early on, like I said, I decided I wanted to be a professional astrologer probably by March, April of 95. And my parents, I told my parents, um, which was, um, <laughs> took them by surprise. Um, but as it happened, they had an old friend, Axel Harvey, who was an astrologer. So they immediately said, oh, well, you should talk to Axel because... Um, Actually, as it happens, what I didn't know until later was Axel was actually the one who had introduced them. <laughs> your parents? <laughs> My parents, wow. yeah. So your parents were introduced by an astrologer? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's a funny story. And um, uh, this is my adopted dad, but, but Axel had also known my birth father as well. Oh, wow. Um, but um, Axel and my adopted dad looked a lot like each other when they were younger. Mm. Like you can, you can see films of them. Uh, they both had sort of red beards and those black sort of Buddy Holly type glasses uh, that people still wore in the 60s. Uh, so they used to always be confused for each other, mm. uh, which is funny. And when you see pictures from them, uh, of them from that era, it's, it's, um, you can understand why. And, and Axel, for those not, because he passed away, I think over a decade ago now. No, he, six years ago. Was it that recently? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was um, just before I moved to South Africa. Got it. Um, but he was kind of one of the leading astrologers in Montreal or in Canada, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was uh, quite, quite renowned. 
a real special guy, really important teacher for me. Um, but what Axel did for me, I met him. Uh, he gave me this tattered old copy of a Neil Mickelson ephemeris, hmm. which is, you know, kind of like giving Jimi Hendrix his first guitar or something. Um, right. Uh, so, it, and that was amazing, you know, um, cause I was reading all these astrology books, but to actually hold this ephemeris, I mean, this thing, I held on to it until it was dust, <laughs> you know, was it like a hundred year, uh, like yeah. American ephemeris? Yeah. Your classic 20th century. It was a noon one, not a midnight one. I mean, later on I would, I would come to prefer the midnight one, but okay. this was a good starter. Um, but it was that hundred year Neil Mickelson. You're a midnight guy instead of a noon guy. Yeah. I mean, that's the preference. It just sort of situ situates you in the calendar a little more securely, but it's, it's not a, it's not a big deal. It's I mean, what's your advice for those that want to know the difference and know, decide which one to go with? Um, well, you know, I, frankly, I mean, for it really to be important, if, if you live in England or Western Europe, then the midnight one is really most appropriate for you. Cause that really does coincide with the the calendar you have locally hmm. um it's set for midnight greenwich time yeah exactly um but either way i mean it's it's only important to a degree you know like when i say i like the midnight one more it's a you know i could i could only have a noon ephemeris for the rest of my life and i'd be perfectly happy and productive it's not that uh important mm -hmm. um but it, you know if you live um Let's say if you live in the uh, central Eurasian plain, actually the noon ephemeris is maybe a little more appropriate for you because then it becomes your kind of midnight ephemeris anyway. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, we don't need to split hairs on that. Okay. Um, but he gave me my first ephemeris, and it was one that I just I carried. I it would it would come with me to New York, and it would sit in my bag, and you know I'd, I'd read it every chance I get, mm. every chance I got. Um, so yeah, um, so, and you, you're like memorizing important dates and shifts, especially like outer planet shifts of like when Uranus went into different signs, exactly, or yeah. when Pluto changed signs, or when you started focusing on like when Venus went retrograde or Mars went retrograde and things yeah. like that. Yeah, all this, all the stuff that that you pick up from an ephemeris, just the, uh, having a real sense of. You know, if I if I would think of a month in a year, you know, February of 1966, it's got an astrological quality. You know, the, um, the the respective planets can only do so much over the course of one month, but that they their positions for that month really come to define it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, after two years, um, <coughs> excuse me again. Um, in 1997, um, February 28th, the night of February 28th to March 1st of 1967, I uh, got a lift to New York with some friends and um, decided to stay there for a while so I could study astrology. I I'd sort of I felt I'd, I'd gone as far as I could um, on my own. Um, and decided I needed more teachers. You know, Axel was great, but I, I didn't want to just be someone who learned astrology from one person. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to New York and started studying with the NCGR. Um, now, you know, this is free, not free internet, but internet in those days was, you know, America online dial-up. <laughs> it wasn't the resource that we have today. Google didn't exist yet. Um, 
if you wanted to uh, look up Astro Data Bank, you had to get Lois Rodden's books, you right. know, that kind of thing. Yeah, like like kids this, these days literally can't imagine like what what it was like lack yeah. of resources available in terms of online stuff. Right, but New York was a real, um, you know, paradise for an astrology student like me because uh, they had all these teachers. the t The teachers taught out of their homes usually or their offices um, but I could study all these different sort of facets of astrology if I wanted to learn Uranian or medieval or horary you know whatever sort of little niche of astrology that I was interested in in one given you know how astrology students are that's part of the joy is sort of bouncing around from style to style until you really find your way yeah um, so I had all these amazing teachers, really great teachers, um, each of whom taught me a lot. And uh, so I spent three years in New York studying with all these different teachers and, and gradually coming into my own. I was realizing recently that it's kind of like art where I was like taking up painting recently with like oil pastels, but it's interesting seeing all the different mediums in which you can practice art. And maybe like early on trying out a bunch of different ones and then eventually finding one that really speaks to you that you want to specialize in and go deep in. Yeah. And it's like astrology is very much like that, like having a wide exposure early on, but then eventually picking something you really want to focus on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a lot like that. Yeah. Um, I was reading a few biographies about Vincent van Gogh not long ago. And, you know, his process was kind of like that. He didn't just sort of emerge fully formed. He he went through a lot of different phases and experimented with different styles and had, you know, or Picasso, you know, later on had the same kind of deal before he really sort of became the, the Picasso we think of, you know, there's yeah. a lot of picking up hats, trying them on, seeing what they look like, putting them down, trying on something else. Yeah. As well as like practice and, and dedication to um, continuing to refine one's skills and like push oneself to get better and better by doing it over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Really keeping the, the, the door of curiosity wide open, you know, and and allowing yourself to uh, receive whatever's sort of coming your way, and and to you know walk through whatever passageway is is inviting you, yeah, at, at a given time. But also getting like the that you know ten thousand hours in of just right. you know if you do anything for like ten thousand hours, you're going to get good at it just through process of repetition and right. trial and error and learning from your mistakes. Because sometimes people have this false conceptualization that everybody who is really good at something, like started good at it, and when it's just immediately, you know, gifted at that thing. And while sometimes that does happen, for I think to some degree, to some extent, there's certainly like you know inborn skill. Um, but there are still people, I think, like Van Gogh, that spend a lot of time refining their skills and learning and getting better and eventually achieving mastery through repetition and through practice. Yeah, I mean, even a prodigy like Mozart. You know, still had to go through a whole growth process, even though he had this innate talent. And really, I think, I mean, part of what it means to be talented is to just have the drive to keep putting in those hours. I mean, that's, you know, it's it's not just a matter of, of um, being born a prodigy, you mm -hmm. know, because that's... That's going to be useless if 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 it's not followed through with with work, right? Or like you know chess champions like mm. you know uh, Bobby Fischer mm -hmm. or um, 
the Russian who I'm spacing, we actually have a birth time of who beat Kasparov, Kasparov, who is amazing, and also even more recently, like Magnus Carlsen, but just people that clearly from a very young age do display skill and, and some sort of talent or some sort of gift, but also like work very hard to get to the top of the field at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Bobby Fischer was a was a child prodigy, but you know, again, I mean he spent all those hours playing chess, all those years playing chess. So it's not it's not just having the talent itself isn't enough. And in fact part of having the talent is just the will to sit there and play a million games of chess, you know. Yeah. So what what is the equivalent to that for astrologers? It's basically like looking at charts, researching charts, researching biographies, but then also doing sitting down and doing consultations yeah um all that stuff all that stuff um as far as research goes i mean yeah for me it certainly meant uh, reading a lot of history books and biographies um but also you know i mean i started out like a lot of people do um, just studying people i liked you know um i like rock and jazz music so i was studying the astrology of the beatles or the astrology of john coltrane or you know i like cinema so i was studying the lives of certain directors or actors i liked or authors i liked but then i um i started to think well you know maybe i don't just want to study the people that i i'm that i'm a fan of maybe i want to study people i can't stand or that i'm indifferent to um, and, and, you know, I also started branching out to studying political history. And so, you know, there's, like, there's far more politicians that I don't like than the ones I do, but that was sort of beside the point. Um, you know, I wanted to be able to, my, my premise ultimately became, I, I wanted to know the astrology behind anything I knew about the world, you know, anything, any piece of knowledge I had about life and and human history i wanted to to understand the astrology behind it mm. um which is a you know pretty big tent to sit in but um yeah uh, um i kept expanding my horizons uh and and tried very hard to to break out of whatever comfort zone became too comfortable yeah i mean that's becoming an interesting discussion today because i think all astrologers have that impulse of something happens in the news, like wanting to look at the charts, if you can look at the charts involved and like try to understand it from the astrological vantage point, like you know, no matter whether it's something really positive or whether it's something very negative and stuff. Um, but now there's starting to become interesting discussions in the community or attention sometimes about discussing like tragedies and things like that and like how soon is too soon or or is it appropriate to like comment and you know things like that on social media when something tragic happens, and it's been interesting seeing some of that dialogue in the community recently. Yeah, um, which I'm really happy to see um, because it has it has bothered me sometimes that that it's not that it's it, it you know it, certainly like all the tragedies of human life sh can and should be studied by astrologers, uh, but I like to wait for the bodies to get cold so to speak you know um i think uh, yeah things like uh, mass murders political assassinations uh, um you know uh, any anything like that um um any kind of tragic event um is worth studying um 
but you know, maybe give it a little bit of time. There's, you have all the time in the world to, to study these things. So, right. Um, cause I think you said you don't like the sort of like amb ambulance chaser yeah. type energy that sometimes comes with that. Yeah. Like it's, it, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound too cynical or like, I think I know what people are thinking, but it does give the impression that people want to write about sort of fresh news because they'll get more clicks, you know, um, which is, I mean, understandable. I mean, we're all, you know, sort of competing for a certain amount of attention, but I think it's, um, you're standing on a, on an ethical, shake your ethical ground. Hmm. Uh, when you do that, I think it's, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it, yeah, I think it's also it's tricky though because also sometimes I think about it, it's like the people that are there and documenting things as they're happening in the moment. There's something about the energy surrounding the moment of something when it's at its freshest, as just let's just say a current news story. Like for example, like the Will Smith, you know, slapping Chris Rock a few months ago. In order to like truly understand the social sort of importance of that you sort of had to like witnesses as it happened and understood you know the perception of will smith up until that moment versus like just the instantaneously this shift that occurred sure. when that happened and the sort of shock that like millions of people had with that moment and in order to understand and contextualize the, like the transits to his chart and different things like that there's something i'm using that as an example because it's more of a it's not like like a tragedy Per se, no, but of... it's a big, big sort of event that people talk about. Yeah, right. I, but you know, I mean, historians always put themselves in this position where they have to sort of recreate the mood of the moment. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you're talking about the Second World War, you have to go back and think of the way the world appeared to people living at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing, you know, I mean, the the Will Smith uh, incident was a few months ago now. But you know, eventually. There are going to be books and interviews and things like that that where Will Smith is going to talk about what was going on in his head that day, mm -hmm. or you know, Jada Pinkett Smith will have something to say, and 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 Chris, well, Chris Rock will have something to say about it. But we'll hear more. We'll get a little more insight um, that will that will probably recontextualize the event in ways that were not obvious to us who are just watching in the moment. Right. Um, and that has a lot of value too, particularly to an astrologer. Um, you know, the same thing goes for, you know, mass shootings and what have you. Like eventually we get to know more about the psychology of the uh, the perpetrator or the circumstances of, of what brought the victims to that moment and place and time. And, you know, all these things that you only find out after the facts, but are actually really valuable to the astrologer studying the event. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to just going, you know, being sort of trying to be like the astrological CNN, you know, just cover the breaking news of the moment. I mean, that's actually, you know, how CNN is recently, they've resolved to, to, to you know, minimize when they call an event breaking news. Oh, have they? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've, you know, I mean, they did just now today... Um, the former prime minister of Japan's been assassinated, and that was legit breaking news. But um, you know, that's kind of the thing: is is you get the the feeling that these um, astrologers who want to write about a really fresh tragedy, they're doing the same thing that CNN is always doing with a breaking news, you know, kind of headline, like get that sort of fresh um, 
get those clicks, get the, you know, satisfy the advertisers, so to speak. Yeah. Um, which it's, isn't always the best motivation. I mean, it's funny because on the podcast, it's like we talk about recent events sometimes in the forecast episodes that have happened in the month since the last forecast. But sometimes if we don't talk about certain things, people get mad at us. So there's been now an interesting tension between those two competing um, polls in the astrological community of, on the one hand, the people that are like, don't talk about certain things too soon because if you do so, that's sort of disrespectful or like ambulance chasing. But then there's the other side that is like, you know, you need to address this. This is a really important event, and and there should be like some sort of um, discussion of it. Otherwise, you're like sweeping something important under the rug. It feels like this to other people. Yeah. So it's it's a little tricky. I'm of two minds. I mean, first of all, let me be clear that uh, you know I'm 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 expressing. Um, I'm expressing a view that I think is just should be up for consideration. I, mm. I'm, I would never dream of sort of policing, you know, the 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 astrological dialogue in the world. I mean, to some degree, we sort of have to let the quote unquote bad out with the good. You know, if if um, if people want to proceed as they are, um, so be it. You know, mm. even if even if we're looking as askance at it. Um, and but the other thing is, I mean, um, that sort of quote unquote ambulance chasing has been normalized. You know, when when you get that kind of feedback from people like, hey, you should be talking about this. It's because we've normalized mm -hmm. the the process of of doing this breaking news kind of approach to um, astrology. Mm. To the point where people really think like, hey, you're supposed to be just talking about the headlines and not, you know. Uh, not things that happened five or ten years ago, you know. Um, right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's tricky. Um, so that brings up biography. <coughs> and you were mentioning, you know, biography is one of your main focuses, basically, even before you got into astrology, was studying and reading the biographies and autobiographies of, of famous people. Yeah. And yeah. that's one of your primary interests in terms of weaving that together with astrology. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, part of how astrology spoke to me was because of that sort of interest I already had. It wasn't just a matter of. I mean, I did have the the experience that we all do of of seeing like, oh, okay, I see how I'm a not just a Leo sun, but I have a Taurus moon, and that explains certain things about me that the leo sun doesn't and you know understanding my you know understanding my chart and and going through that process of sort of self-discovery which was really important to me in my 20s um but that only went so far i was also because i knew the sort of the the chronologies of, of so many different lives that i had read about um i could understand the the transits that followed people through their their experiences mm. um you know the the authors and filmmakers and musicians that i was interested in i could understand oh yes they released this album that was you know critically panned and they were depressed and they had that saturn transit oh that makes sense so they got a divorce or or this was the moment when they became world famous and everything was going well for them or whatever happened to be the thing right um so that is part of how astrology revealed itself to me and how it how it you know how i made the uh the damask uh, damascus road to damascian uh i forget what they call it sort of turnaround going from um being very hostile to astrology to suddenly being uh, 
a full-on convert. Right. And you saw the light like Constantine. That's yes. what you're talking about. <laughs> Except it was like a birth chart like, yeah. and glowing yeah. in the sky. Yeah. Um, that brings up one of the points we were just talking about, but it was how um, one of the issues with using the charts of people like celebrities and current events is that their lives aren't over yet and their stories are still being written. Yeah. And that's been a really interesting thing for me over the past decade with you know different celebrities I used as chart examples either in my book or in my courses and some of the lectures that I recorded, let's say 10 years ago or recorded in you know around 2014, 2015 from a Hellenistic course. And you know, some of them have continued to have you know interesting lives or a continuation of some of the stories and events in their lives that I talked about earlier, and how that's played out has been interesting in different ways. Like, you know, Britney Spears, for example, and I talked about her conservatorship, which was already four or five years in, into it, like in the you know early to mid twenty teens, and then seeing that sort of wrapped up, or at least her being released from that finally. Just in the past year, basically, or in the past few months, right? And she just got married again, didn't she? Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. With um, there was something actually interesting about that. Oh yeah, Jupiter had just ingressed into her seventh house, which I thought was really interesting. Right. Sort yeah, of like manifestation. Yeah. She's Libra rising, and Jupiter went into Aries, and she got married. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it's like her, or um, you know, George Lucas, of course, and like selling the Star Wars franchise, and then having. The, the new trilogy come out and his lack of involvement in that or um, yeah various other celebrities yeah yeah um, no absolutely I, I um, I've also studied Brittany and, and George Lucas and then there are other people like um, Bob Dylan or Paul McCartney who are still going strong like their lives are still very interesting and very mm -hmm. public um, and um, even though I've been studying their charts now for nearly 30 years <laughs> a quarter century anyway um so the, yeah the, that's that's interesting though these they remain works in progress until you know the person finally leaves us mm -hmm. um but i have i mean over time even though i i enjoy studying uh um you know these living figures partly because they're just they're, they're interesting people to me um i do find i get a lot more value investing my time studying people who are no longer alive because then you really do have something a bit more complete um yeah because otherwise there might be like something that hasn't happened yet that their chart shows and is, is very clear in the chart as like a signature but it hasn't happened yet and therefore may not make sense in terms of what you currently know about their biography yeah yeah um yeah just you know for for learning purposes i just find i get a you know it's an investment in time i guess the, the further i go the more i have to think about it in terms of you know how much time am i going to spend studying this person or that person and ultimately i found that you know um for it really to be worth my while um in a sort of neutral sense, not because, you know, I mean, I'm a bigger fan of, say, Paul McCartney or Bob Dylan than I am of many other people, but um, I might, you know, I've gotten a lot more out of studying, say, Richard Nixon, who uh, I happen to admire a lot less than, than the people I'm mentioning, but he's a really excellent uh, subject to study. Right. Um, and it doesn't matter. I don't need to be, you know, a, a, a Republican in order to appreciate that fact. Mm. Um, and and yeah, people who uh, a 
live long lives. You know, I mean, I remember you and I were talking uh, not long ago about Kurt Cobain, which is all well and good. I'm a huge fan. But um, all these guys, Jimi Hendrix and, and, you know, people who only live to 27, I've studied them all, huge fan of them. But frankly, for, you know, the, the just the purpose of studying astrology, I find I don't get as much studying the life of someone who that only went to 27 as I do the lives of people who live to be 60 or older. It's just you get that much more, um, much more of a chance to watch all the planets spin around over the course of their lives. And there's, there's just more ups and downs. Um, and uh, yeah, you get, you get more for your investment, you know, your time investment. Yeah, I, th- I always think about now. Every time Jimi Hendrix is mentioned, I think about the fact that Joe Biden was born like within a week of him, yeah. and with the same rising sign, with Sagittarius right. rising, so they have the same houses and and some similar placements. Except Biden's like uh, Scorpio stellium has shifted into a bit into Sagittarius and Hendrix's chart. But that's that's a really good example then of like somebody whose life was cut off at you know, 27 versus somebody who, you know, later is in his, what, 70s at this point and, and eventually at the, towards the end of his life became president. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, um, I haven't done that much work on Biden's life, but everything I do know about him, like really sort of starts with uh, the death of his first wife and child, you know, just in, in the early days of his political career. It is sad return. Yeah. By which point, exactly. By which point he's by which point Jimi Hendrix is dead, you know, right. uh, by which point Jimi Hendrix has literally done everything he'll ever do. Um, so, uh, you know, eventually maybe, maybe it's out there. I don't know, but you know, what was Joe Biden doing in his twenties? You know, um, well, I guess that, that knowledge is probably out there. I just haven't gotten to it yet, hmm. but it's probably not covered in the same kind of detail that Jimi Hendrix's years in the sixties are where, you know, certainly, um, between when he lands in London in September of 1966 and when he dies in London exactly four years later. I mean, everything that Jimi Hendrix is known for pretty much was done in this very short four-year period. But that four-year period is covered virtually day by day. We know what he was doing and how he was growing and, and what was happening to him and all this stuff. I mean, that's an interesting concept in of itself of like, Maybe potentials that people have, or what they could have been, but their lives get cut off early, and so you don't get to see the full manifestation or, or maturation of some of those chart placements that maybe would have happened otherwise. Yeah, I mean exactly. Um, you know, I mean it's it's hard enough. I mean, someone like like Jimmy, you know, I mean it it just breaks my heart all the time. I always think, just as a music fan, like, what, wow, what would he have done if he could have been with us right up to now? Mm. You know. Uh, maybe he'd be president by now. <laughs> right? Uh, couldn't do any worse. Um, but yeah, he'd be great. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, I mean that always hits you. But it, it, indeed, like just um, not, you know, since none of that potential is realized, it's all uh, um, speculation anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, that brings up, uh, you know, at, at hindsight, there was it wasn't a debate, but there was a tendency of a. Schmidt had this idea that everybody should adopt like one biography and really just like master that one biography and, and apply all your techniques to it and learn that biography as well as you can so that then you have a primary reference as your primary case study with which to apply different techniques or what have you. Um, but it seems like you're more on the side of having many different biographies to study is more valuable to you than just a single one. Yeah. Um, actually, this is, you know, um, 
we should get to Schmidt. I mean, this is this is a perfect segue. Um, there I was in New York City studying with the NCGR between 1997 and 2000. But in the summer of 1999, and with you studied specifically under Michael Luton at one point, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I studied. I started a class with Michael Luton in January of 99. Okay, um, and that carried right through until the spring of 2000, as I recall. Because you should tell a little bit more about just what the scene was like to set the stage before we go into your exposure to Project Hindsight and stuff. Just like what was... So it's like libraries, a lot of great libraries there. The NCGR was probably the main organization and certainly the main game in town in terms of New York, right? Yeah. The National Council for Geocosmic Research. That's right. Um, they had their certification exams. I was doing those. I did my level one in 97, my level two in 98, my level three in 99. And that was like a good... Was that, that was considered like a good course back then? Oh, it was an excellent course. Yeah, okay. yeah. And and I learned a lot doing the exams. You know, um, for instance, learned how to cast a chart by hand for the exams. You know, we were already astro.com existed. You know, um, so you could go online and cast a chart, but it was really worthwhile learning the process of of how to uh, calculate a chart by hand. Um, you used like a sundial and you went outside and everything <laughs> no but, for, but the, I, for I, the kids like the, explain no it was a we were using a, a, a scientific calculator um is yeah. that like a cell phone mobile phone it, or something? it looks like one okay. yes <laughs> but why didn't you just use your iphone or something like uh, yeah yeah i know okay. um I, I the first time i ever saw a cell phone apart from like you know those giant ones like you see in in michael oh, douglas yeah. and wall street you know, holding right. uh, would be around 99, 2000, the, the little sort of Nokia flip phones or Blackberries, okay. I guess, were actually big also, you know. A little later on. Um, yeah, I guess do you have like a pager or something like that. I do, I have, do remember seeing like some History Channel documentaries or like um, other documentaries you can find sometimes on YouTube from like the 90s and you see these hilarious, you know, like Rob Hand with this old dot matrix printer and it's just like printing out a chart but it's taking like right. hours and hours just to print like one chart even or... that's a little before my time a little earlier okay a little earlier but that still kind of existed certainly um but we had yeah we were we were a little ahead of the the game at that point yeah um but yeah michael luton's class was really excellent i mean michael luton taught me how to be a consulting astrologer. I learned a lot of astrology from him, but more than anything, I learned how to be an astrologer, how to be a professional astrologer. Um, you know, my ethics trainings and, and, and things like that, things that really came in handy in terms of, you know, not just being good at reading charts, but how to be useful, you know, how to actually help people. Right. Because he had uh, and a, not harm them. He had a major like incident with that where he doing astrology, did a consultation for somebody, and then somebody, uh, some bad thing happened later to that person, and Michael really, that hit him in a really striking way, and he decided he wanted to learn psychology and counseling in order to to be better in terms of doing consultations, or, or that's part of his like mythos? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there is a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of power, you know. Um, ironically, whether you're good at it or not, you know, the, just the power of suggestion. Um, it, 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 it could be very easy to, you know, harm someone in some way uh, without understanding it if you don't have, if you're not, if you don't have the kind of training you need, um, you know, a, a certain approach to, to 
yeah. to the job and, a, and, an, and an end goal. You know, you're, you're there to help someone. And if you're not helping them, there's no point in doing it. Right. And that's really important because sometimes some astrologers might get in the wrong headspace of that their goal is just to like show off or like demonstrate their predictive abilities or something like that. And that's not necessarily no, where not. the focus should be. No. Yeah. yeah. It, um, that's, that's the last thing. I mean, you know, if you want to dazzle your astrologer friends, then, then, you know, you can, um, there are other ways to go about it. Uh, but, but working with live subjects who, who are, you know, in the midst of their lives and, and, you know, are trying to sort their, their things out, you're, you're there to help them and, and not to be impressive. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily, I mean, in a consultation, you, you may or may not be called upon to sort of forecast something, but it's, that's not the end game. You're not there to just sort of read someone's future, you know, or, or tell them what you think their future is going to be. Uh, you know, if anything, you're more of a navigator, you're not driving the, the train. Mm. Something I was thinking of recently that's so radically different now compared to back then is um, in terms of like understanding what the astrological community was and what the cr sort of curriculum was, is like most astro everybody had like the same five or 10 books in their library back in the like late 90s and early 2000s like there were certain books like like planets in transit for example it's like sure. everybody had planets in transit yeah. everybody had a copy of the ephemeris everybody probably had like one liz at least one liz green book mm -hmm. you know there were certain like standards in terms of late 20th century astrology that everyone was like more or less on the same page and led to a lot of or at least somewhat more consistency and coherency in terms of where most astrologers were at at that point and what their practice or what the technical approach to astrology looked like for the most part more more um people being on the same page or almost being more monocultural almost compared to now where there's so many more resources and so many more ways to learn astrology that things are a lot more diverse and a lot more all over the place in some ways yeah yeah i mean it was starting to fragment right as i was getting into it but just starting i mean you, you're you're right the, i i don't think i'd ever met an astrologer who hadn't read planets in transit uh saturn a new look at an old devil by liz green uh, was definitely a big one um or the others uh, like Oaken's complete astrology sure Oaken's complete astrology yeah uh, noel teal's books were were a pretty big deal mm -hmm. um uh, there was another one on the tip of my tongue just now. Oh, of course, Parker's astrology, Derek and Julia Parker. Mm -hmm. um, I'll never forget the day I saw them in in England, just sort of you know already sort of old and and what have you. But it was it was really like seeing you know rock stars right. <laughs> or, or something. I, I was the the only time I've ever really met astrologers and been sort of dazzled, like oh my god, I can't believe it's them. I can't believe I'm standing right next to them. Right. Um, well, it's crazy to me that people like like Dane Rudyard lived into the. 80s yeah. and was like still giving lectures at that point yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um but i never knew him he was he was gone by the time i but he's another one certainly um particularly oh yeah in in my days in montreal you know when i was buying all those used astrology books a good number of them were dane rudyard books yeah of course he'd, he'd actually lived in montreal at one point so that you know made him a bit of a local hero in a sense yeah, so that was another one that everybody read was at least some Dane Rudyard books. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was just. Um... Uh, what about one of my first books was the Astrologer's Handbook by Sequoyan and Acker. Do you think that was like up there with yeah. standard astrology yeah, I mean, books? It's, it's 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 in that 
it's in that group of books we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not quite the Rob Hand Liz Green level, but it was it was a pretty common book. I certainly saw it around a lot, had a copy and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Luton's library. The end, well, he has his office on Fifth Avenue, New York, housed um, the Joanna Shannon Library, the the local NCGR library, and that was you know that was amazing to have um, at that stage of my you know study something yeah. you know I could borrow books and take them home and read them and and uh, yeah, just an amazing collection. Yeah, because most people don't have that and don't have access to a very good astrological library pretty much at any time because most libraries even if you have a local library is not going to have normally like a super amazing collection of astrology books Um, but having an actual dedicated astrology library from an organization would be a great resource yeah Um, I mean since then I've um, I mean I've been blessed Um, number one I've, I've sort of inherited Axel Harvey's library which is sitting in boxes in a storage space in Montreal right now. But at some point, I want to make it available to um, Canadian astrologers or anyone coming to visit. And then back home in South Africa, we have, um, we're housing the, um, the, the local Cape Astrology Association's library, which is also you know, quite impressive collection. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, but and, and because these, these books are, you know, that I, I happen to be connected to these two libraries um i'm I, you know it, it it it's something that i really want to to be able to share with with you know astrology students as time goes i just got to get to the point where i can do that mm-hmm. yeah so so that's the state of things you're studying with michael luton and then yeah what was the transition point to studying traditional astrology so yeah um in june of 99 uh, there was an NCGR conference at Hunter College. They always have their local conference. And I gave my very first astrology talk at that conference. I'd only been studying for four and a half years. I thought it, they, they invited me to speak, but I thought, you know, I was like, I'm not ready for this, but I did it anyway. And funny enough, I did a talk on Venus, although, like, as far as I'm concerned today, I knew SFA about Venus in, in June of 99. Right. I was only vaguely aware of the eight-year synodic cycle and all that. It's very funny to me that it just happened to be... The reason it was a theme for the conference was because there was a Venus retrograde coming up, mm. which would eventually become very meaningful to me, and partly because of the way this summer played out. So that, as I recall, was June 6, 99. I remember it being like 6, 6, 99. And then a week or two later... There was a conference in Williamsburg, Virginia, for astrocartography, which was I was very interested in. Arlene Nymark was um, uh, having this, uh, you know, she organized this conference. So I drove down to Williamsburg with um, two fellow New York astrologers, one who I knew, one one woman who was in my astrology class, and then another woman who was a student of Arlene's from another class. But she sort of said, "Hey, would you give this?" woman a ride. This was a woman named Darcy Woodall. And so the three of us drove down to Williamsburg. And at Williamsburg, um, it was, I'll never forget, it was um, a Saturday night at the, the bar, the, the hotel where the conference was. And it was full of astrologers, you know, at all these different tables, having these different com- conversations. And I looked over at this corner table and um, there was this really animated guy with this white, twisty mustache. Um, 
speaking very enthusiastically and, and forcefully uh, about Hellenistic astrology. And he was explaining it to this woman. And uh, he, he just seemed really interesting to me. And this was Alan White, mm -hmm. our, our, uh, someone who, along with Axel Harvey and Michael Luton, um, stands as a very uh, important teacher for me. And um, so I met Alan, and he was there promoting. And this is where we're, we're connecting the story to um, uh, Robert Schmidt and, and his view on biography. Uh, the reason Alan was at this conference, because Alan wasn't particularly interested in astrocartography, but he was there to uh, promote the um, Project Hindsight, Hindsight uh, um, Einstein conclave, which was going to begin the following weekend. Mm -hmm. um, so what appealed to me, I mean, Hellenistic astrology sounded interesting enough, but what really appealed to me was this idea that they were going to actually read the entire life of a human being using a system because this was some I, I thought actually very naively i thought this was something that astrologers always did i thought this would have you know just naturally been uh the approach but not really as it turned out most astrologers you know yeah they might read a famous person's chart but they would just sort of look at the natal chart and you know talk about why you know the saturn in the 10th house represented this thing that they did or the you know whatever um yeah. just sort of reading the natal chart and, and f f custom fitting it to to the notoriety of of the person involved yeah it would just be about like mentioning a few select placements and a few select things that are known about that celebrity that are like well-known things but then kind of just leaving it at that which right. is a bit more limited yeah yeah so um i was very excited by the sound of this now as it happened um darcy woodall the woman who had driven down with us to williamsburg had been to hindsight to earlier hindsight conclaves and she had a cassette of, of robert schmidt which we listened to in the car during the drive back um it was you know one of his sort of um outlines of hellenistic astrology um his early earlier recordings so i was really and she was telling me about the house in cumberland and and the community and all this stuff that they had done and i was i was only just sort of tangentially aware that that because i i by this point i had seen both robert hand and robert zoller give talks in new york um in fact when i saw hand in 98 it was it was um, his talk in 98 that I saw um, that convinced me to switch to whole sign houses. So I was already a whole sign house convert before, you know, I found Schmidt and Hellenistic astrology proper. Which, which is super early days because like whole sign houses didn't, when I came into the community in like 2004, 2005 or discovered Hellenistic astrology, I was shocked that whole sign houses had not sort of penetrated the community hardly at all at that point. Right. And it took another five to ten years for it really start start to take up like market share in the community to what it is today where it's probably at least the second most popular house system yeah but you you know 1988 1989 it would have been even lower numbers exactly yeah but but hand made a really conv convincing argument for it when i saw him speak in 98 um and i saw zoller give a good talk um at L michael luton's office around 99. Hmm. um so I was already somewhat aware of this, but but you know now Darcy was giving me this whole history about Project Hindsight and this whole sort of mystique around it. So sure enough, the following weekend, uh, Darcy and I met up at Penn Station and got on a train, 
um, and uh, made our way to Cumberland, Maryland. And um, there we were. I, I, I attended three of the four uh, Einstein conclaves. I think I missed the third one. Mm. There was one, the Einstein intensives is what they're calling the Einstein intensives. And uh, the, the idea was to read Albert Einstein's entire life, you know, from from birth to death hmm. uh, using the Hellenistic system. And it was a, a really amazing learning experience and also just a, a bonding experience, because what I felt uh, getting to know Alan, getting to know Robert um, and, and other people in the group, because um, there were some amazing people, you know, uh, who attended these things. Uh, it really felt like, a, you know, I'd, I'd reached some new level of study, of investigation. Something was really stimulating my curiosity. NCGR had done very well by me. But once again, I felt like I was, you know, after Michael Luton's class, I felt like, okay, I've really done, I've exhausted, I've gone to virtually every teacher available in New York. I mean, it was amazing to have 15, 20 different teachers available to me. But now I've I've gone through them. <laughs> I need something else. Um, so this was this was the next step, and I became very serious about um, learning Hellenistic astrology and staying involved with Project Hindsight, which I did. You know, um, and that was like that intensive was given like supposedly or theoretically, I guess, because um, I wasn't around. But it was supposed to be one of the points early on where Schmidt got his first version together of, of he, where he is the first one of the first times he thought that he had fully reconstructed the system and like this is what Hellenistic astrology was and that he, he thought he had a system down for how it was supposed to be applied and that's demonstrating that I guess is part, part of what the Einstein intensives were supposed to be about. Yeah. And there's something I got to say, this really kind of impressed me um, about Schmidt was um, here was someone who wasn't an astrologer, but he was well versed in astrology. He had obviously, like, he knew all the different techniques and and the history and the jargon. But he wasn't actually. He was. He had never given anyone a reading in their life. He wasn't someone. He didn't necessarily believe in astrology. I mean, this was the thing. The Einstein intensives. Um, I was actually watching him become convinced himself hmm. of astrology because the the intensives were going so well. Right. Because the know. techniques were working and describing Einstein's life. Right. Because for him this had been sort of an intellectual exercise. You know, he was a lot more serious about uh, translating Greek texts than he was about astrology in itself, in its own right. Yeah, that's such a hard thing to describe about Schmidt and about Schmidt's biography is the Almost reluctant astrologer that he became, but but just that for so long he wasn't an astrologer, and that wasn't how he conceptualized himself. And um, and that period in ninety nine is really where it changed. Mm, like it where, started to change. Yeah, where it started like that. You know, so it was happening before my eyes, um, which was really intriguing. And that's 99? Yeah. That's... Which is wild, actually, if you think about it in terms of his biography, because he'd already done the majority of the Project Hindsight translations that he would ever do were completed in the four years up to that point between like 1994, 1993 and 1998, basically, right. when Hindsight produced something like a couple dozen translations, like yeah. 20 or 30 translations. And then you know, tapered off, and he did a few more after that, spaced out over the years. But 
most of the translation work and the preliminary translations was done in the mid 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, I mean, for him, this was, you know, kind of an intellectual exercise. He was very serious about translating from Greek to English, you know, just doing a good job at that. But in but trying to get the astrology right, really trying. I mean, that was the thing, not just getting the lots of people had translated these texts or some of them anyway, but but just to sort of translate them. He wanted to properly represent the astrology, the intention of the author. Right. Well, he wanted to reconstruct like the original philosophy because he thought there was a hidden philosophy in Hellenistic astrology in a philosophical school that had never been properly recognized. Yeah. And then and that the philosophical concepts were embedded in the astrological terminology. Right. Yeah. So right. yeah. So anyway, so you started to apply that, you were really impressed by the Einstein intensives started getting into Hellenistic astrology and then also started getting into one of the things that they had rediscovered was the use of um, planetary periods and synodic cycles yes. like the eight-year period of Venus or the 15-year period of Mars and that's something that you ended up like latching on to yeah. as an interesting piece of astrology to specialize in. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean what I brought to the, you know, by the time I got to Project Hindsight. I had already I, I got my first copy of Solar Fire version four, if you can imagine, uh, in the spring of '99. So a few months earlier. Mm -hmm. So I was just starting to build my da database, you know, and I was starting off again with the the people I was interested in, the you know the Beatles, John Coltrane, uh, you know, different jazz and rock musicians and filmmakers and stuff, mm -hmm. um, and just a little bit of politics that would sort of take over more later. Um, so I was already, you know, so when I meet Schmidt, okay, he's doing the life of Einstein. Great. You know, that's, I'm, I'm already sort of doing my own version of what he's doing, except not with Hellenistic astrology, but I'm already trying to recreate in, entire lives um, astrologically. Um, but indeed, it was with Schmidt that, that, you know, I learned about the planetary periods. Um, I was sort of vaguely aware that the synodic cycle of Venus was eight years, but he really outlined it for me. He really explained synodic cycles to me. In for you know, for his part, he was just trying to explain why planetary periods, what the rationale was behind them. But for me, it was just something that sort of uh, um, took on a life of its own. Right. Because most of the Time Lord systems are based on planetary periods one way or another, or a lot of them are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, in 2000, I left New York and I moved to Europe. Uh, at first, I lived in the Netherlands. I'd basically, I'd had a girlfriend in New York and she was going, she was Dutch and she was going back to the Netherlands and I followed her back because I felt I was really sort of done with New York. Uh, you know, I'd, 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 I'd exhausted what I could do there. Um, so I lived in the Netherlands and um, my plan then, this is now the, the summer and autumn of 2000, um, there was a new website out called StarIQ.com being run by these two guys out in Seattle, Jeff Jower and Rick Levine. And um, they had like sort of celebrity astrology stuff, but it was smart stuff. You know, it was, it was pop culture, but sort of next level for pop culture astrology. I was like, this is perfect. This is my niche. This is exactly what I want to do is write about, uh, you know, movie stars and musicians and write about their charts and their art and, and that kind of thing. 
Um, so, um, and here I was, I was about to move to Europe where I'm, you know, I don't have like a work visa or anything. So I'm like, great. I can have this job, you know, I'm a Canadian living in Europe. I can write for an American company and they can send checks to my Canadian bank account and I can actually try to survive. And it was a pretty solid plan. I wrote some good articles. My first one was about, uh, Salma Hayek playing Frida Kahlo before the movie came out. Um, just sort of like her plan to do it and why it was important to, for her to do it. And she, both Salma Hayek and Frida Kahlo had Saturn in Pisces. So, you know, I was writing about the fact that there was this link between the two of them. Um, and from there, I was writing about, uh, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman and um, Christina Ricci, Beck, you know, just Ridley Scott, um, you know, different people who interested me who were sort of in the news at the time. And um, that was really fun. Um, and that lasted up until the spring of 2001 when the famous dot-com bubble burst. And um, this changed everything because suddenly Star IQ couldn't afford to pay me anymore to write articles. Um, this changed a lot for Rick and Jeff and, and what they went on to do from there. Um, and um, Right, because they talk about Star IQ as like this thing that almost took off and like almost became this huge website, but then the dot, dot com bubble burst and the bottom just dropped out of it. Exactly. Exactly. And I would have been, you know, one of, I, I was, I was writing maybe two, three articles a month, maybe, maybe one or two articles a month. I forget. Hmm. I, between October of 2000 and March, April of 2001, you know, so I wrote like nine or 10 articles at that time and, and I would have kept going and I was, I was good at it. You know, um, anytime these days that I start to, uh, you know, doubt my writing skills, I go back and read that stuff and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I know how to write. Okay. I'm, I'm okay. I just got to get myself in that headspace again. Um, so that was, you know, the dot-com bubble losing Star IQ was a blow to me because suddenly I'm living in Europe and I don't have an income stream. And it was a bit of a struggle for a couple of months. And then in September of 2001, um, the, I heard the uh, AA, the uh, Astrology Association of Great Britain, was having a conference in Sirencester. Um, so in early September 2001, I... Um, you know, I took a, a ferry over to England. Or to, no, I flew. I'm sorry. I flew that time. I flew to London and then took a bus to Sirencester and attended this conference. Um, and while I was at the conference, uh, there was a table there, an information table for this company uh, called Astro Live Link. It was a phone, an astrology phone service. So the, these are the days of the famous psychic hotlines. You know, there were, there were a lot of them in New York. Um, which, Miss, Miss Cleo and Miss stuff like Cleo, that. Miss Cleo, that kind of thing. Yeah. But Astro Live Link was like, you know, a such a phone service where people could call up, you know, and be charged by the minute to get advice. But it was expressly just for astrology done by astrologers. So I felt That's like... such a late 90s, like early 2000s thing. Like exactly. A, like a call-in, like a psychic exactly. service. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought, okay, perfect. Like I never wanted to work for a Miss Cleo type thing because I, you know, uh, had pretensions to having integrity. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to be able to sort of look at myself in the mirror, so to speak, uh, which is important to a Leo. Hmm. Um, but this was something like, oh, yeah, you know, I can do this because I'm not misrepresenting who I am and what I do. And, you know, um, so sure enough, I, 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 uh, I applied for Astral Live Link and they gave me a test read. I had to read for the guy who was the manager of the company. 
and I apparently did a good enough job that they hired me. Now, the funny thing is, this was, I can tell you the, the date for this, because this would have been September 7th, 8th, and 9th of 2001. This was the weekend before 9-11. Mm. Uh, in fact, I'll never forget, one of the people I met at the conference in Sirencester was Greg Bogart, uh, an astrologer, an American astrologer who I think lives in California. Mm. But I remember, you know, I met him and we, you know, had a nice little chat. And when 9-11 happened, I remember I knew like, oh, he's someone I know is supposed to be flying back to California today. And I remember sending him an email like, you know, Greg, are you okay? Kind of thing. Mm. Um, you know, in the... In uh, all that craziness of 9-11, which I uh, I saw happen from, um, you know, our little TV in, in, uh, in the Netherlands. I was back in the Netherlands after the conference was over. So there I was. I had a, um, okay, so 9-11's happening and the world is changing in all those ways. But now I have a new job, mm. which is um, reading for this um, phone service. And this was a job I would keep for quite a while. I was with them for a good seven, eight years. Yeah. And one of the things that's cool about that and also contrast with the past two years of you is like with Astro Live Link, people would call you up and right away, you know, you'd ask for their birth data and it was the no prep. You had to perfect the no prep consultation, right? which is a very... Kind of tricky thing to, and scary thing to do. Yeah, yeah. That's. Um, I mean, it, thankfully, I had. I mean, this this helped me develop a skill set that I was already working on, but it really helped me perfect it, which was, you know, getting to know the ephemeris so well that um, that you had it in your head that you you know you put up a chart and you you already had an idea of how a person's secondary progressions were going to go. You had an idea of how the transits were affecting their chart. You could. Do you know the the preparation that an astrologer typically does? You 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 would have to be able to do it within a few seconds, whereas like really reasonably for any you know functional adult human being, you know it's not unheard of to take half an hour to an hour or several hours. So like memorizing like you know that Saturn was in Pisces and like X number of years in the nineties, and therefore that it would have been transiting like this sector of their chart and being able to like remember. And pull that up in your mind instead of like you know having to you know type up the chart or look it up in a book or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. I had a computer, and that you know, as soon as I picked up the phone, I would get the person's birth data. I'd enter it in, and I'd look at the chart. But yeah, this was a phone service. I I, I believe the people were paying like three British pounds a minute. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I got I think half of that. Hmm. Uh, but that's a lot of money for minute by minute. You know. And, right. And so, what's I, the I, average like length of a consultation like that? Um, there was a there was a law in Britain which I, I actually fully agreed with that after twenty minutes the call was automatically ended. Oh wow! Yeah, like so you had a you know the the person did have the option to call you back, but the idea was that you couldn't just sort of um, exploit them and you drag know, it out, drag or it out and keep right. them paying. You know, which I I was I was great I was grateful to have that that um, those parameters those those boundaries. That's why that's wild constraints though of like literally no prep like. Get their yeah. births out at the beginning, enter it in, like go, and then you have twenty minutes to do a reading. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's like a you know, and and it's like a lot of things. Like, um, of course, I was, I was uh, you know, like I said, I'm a uh, I'm a musician, a big music fan. So I thought of it being like a jazz musician, you know. Uh, not that I've ever been the caliber of a jazz musician, but I I I know jazz well enough that um, you know, jazz. The whole idea of being a jazz musician is being able to. Uh, play anything at any time in the moment without any prep. You know, um, mm. back in the '90s, I used to be a, a busboy at a jazz club in Montreal, and I would literally see like 
a piano player come in for the first time, meet the drummer and bassist like on the bandstand. They shake hands, tell them each, uh, each other's name, and then one of them suggests a song, and they count off a tempo, and boom, they sound like they've been rehearsing for months mm. together, even though these guys have only just met. So that was kind of um, a, a jumping point for me. Like, okay, well, I can be like an astrological jazz musician so to speak just you know develop my skill to such a point where i, I can do things in in the moment mm. um so yeah that 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 worked as as well as it possibly could um it's it's not ideal i mean it's funny to me you know in today's world the, the post-covid world you know people are used to working online mm. um it's it's become the new norm um but this was something that started for me literally at the turn of the the century um, all that time I was working online, um, I get, I, up until I moved to South Africa, I had, I, I don't think I'd given more than 10 astrology readings in person ever. Like all my work was done online. Yeah. You know? And it's a lot different, like reading for somebody who's sitting in front of you versus doing it over the phone or over the computer. Yes. Yeah. Um, today with, with Zoom, it's a little better because they're video calls. It's, it's different with a phone call, you mm -hmm. know, because a, a, a disembodied voice is, is very sort of, you know, it, it's, it's not the same thing as looking someone in the eye. Mm -hmm. But even, even a Zoom call isn't anywhere near as personal as being in the room with someone indeed. Um, so yeah, I worked for Astro Live Link for quite a while, really until my, my you know, I had a, a bad health problem that surfaced around 2007 when, when you and I were both in Cumberland. Mm -hmm. And that was why I had to go back to Montreal. And the next few years would be a real struggle for me because I had health problems and it was hard for me to, I, I wasn't, you know, my skills were diminished um, at that time because I was I was struggling with um, sleep apnea, which ironically, again, you know, these days, lots of people know what it's like to have a, a respiratory condition that that affects their sleep. And, and they're used, you know, people, a lot of people walking around with brain fog problems. These were my problems um, back in 2007 to 2014. Yeah, and you said you'd actually seen that coming up in your chart years earlier. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah right from the get-go. I mean, I learned about secondary progressions pretty early on um, in 95. And it's, I, like, it's like one of the primary timing techniques in modern astrology? Sure, exactly. So I, I learned about them quite early on, and they were a technique that I was always using. And I saw in my secondary progress chart, <coughs> excuse me, that... Um, in September 2007, I would have a progressed solar eclipse conjunct Uranus at 29 Virgo. And like a lot of astrology students, I, I made myself a little crazy with anxiety, wondering, you know, how that was going to play out. And sure enough, it really was, it was even worse than I could have imagined, you know. Yeah. Um, so you saw something coming up and it, you didn't feel like it looked good and you wondered for the greater part of a decade like what that would be? Yeah, it was a good 12 years between reading my first astrology book and when this happened. And it really did, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, we've just seen like everyone on planet Earth go crazy for being locked up for two years. Well, this was like being under lockdown for seven years in many ways. I mean, I did get out from time to time. I made it to a few conferences like New Orleans in 2012. And I remember you and I in, te in Texas in 2010 mm -hmm. um, and yeah, a few others. Um, but th th that was hard. It was hard just to get there and it was hard to be sharp enough to, to um, give talks. I was just, I was, I was, you know, struggling and doing my best. But um, 
it was it was not ideal. Yeah. Um, I mean, that brings up a question about eclipses, or how do you conceptualize eclipses? It's been a discussion point and debate recently about sometimes eclipses can be really negative, and it can foreshadow a really negative event in a person's life. Um, other times, it can foreshadow like a major change that ends up being a positive event. But it seems like the one characteristic thing that ties them in common is just like that they signify major changes happening in a person's life. Yeah. Um, look, some other thing. I mean, it was at that same time at the end of August of 2007, just as that, that progressed eclipse was hitting, my health was coming apart, but I, I managed to write this pretty good article for the ESAR journal about Venus retrograde and um, the history of racial uh, unrest in the US. A pretty major piece. What was the title again? Uh, cycles of Injustice. Like Venus retrograde cycles of injustice. Venus retrograde cycles of injustice. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, that article sort of, you know, I mean, I remember writing it thinking like, wow, you know, if, if I don't survive this health problem, at least I've done something, you know. Um, so, and, and that did sort of ironically cement my reputation in the community, at least for the time being, while I was struggling with my health problems. So that at least I had, uh, yeah, something under my belt, some kind of rep in the community. Um, even though my life was hell. In the big picture, you know, um, you know six, six, seven years have gone by now. Actually, eight years have gone by since I really sort of overcame that health problem. But it was seven years of living with it. And when you go through seven years of, of that kind of struggle, it really feels... I, I mean, I didn't know if I would ever be okay again. I didn't know, you know, I mean... I, I could get quite miserable about it at the time. Wasn't Saturn going through Leo at the time as well? Yes. So Saturn, Saturn was on my ascendant. Through your first house? Yeah, all through my first house when this happened. So yeah, the transits were corresponding to the progression. But I, I knew that. I mean, I knew also that when I was going to have the secondary progression, it was going to interact with the transits in such a way that, um, uh, you know, that, that was part of the reason why I thought it wouldn't be. Like, again, going to your question about solar eclipses. Yeah, they're, they're not necessarily going to be a disaster on their own, but if you happen to have Saturn going over all the same points that the progressions uh, involve at that same time, because this was, at, yeah, Saturn going from Leo into Virgo, my chart, as you can see, is all sort of Leo and Virgo. So this was like a long extended Saturn transit. Yeah, I mean, it brings up a question about your chart that I mentioned earlier, which is that your ascendant is at 15 and your sun is at 21. So it's like right in that range where, for example, with George Lucas, he has about a six degree difference, but it really, to me, behaves like a like a day chart rather than a night chart. And I think it's because once the sun gets within about six degrees, it starts getting really bright out so that for all intents and purposes, it's like daytime out, even if the sun hasn't broken the horizon. Do you have a sense of whether yours is a day chart or a night chart? Because it's like right on the border where I feel like it could go either way. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't know just like offhand looking at your chart. Yeah. Well, I remember at one point you and Lisa were quite convinced I was a, a, a diurnal rather than a nocturnal. A day chart. Okay. Yeah. Um, I I think so. Having when when I look at my zodiacal releasing, that to me is the thing that really suggests that my chart behaves like a day chart, mm. even though technically it's it's a nocturnal chart. Right. Okay. Strictly speaking. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. We'll have to come back. I mean, think about, I mean, when you look at this chart, you know very well, um, 
like first of all when i if you know i was born at the royal victoria hospital in montreal um and if you know the city's geography um it's a hospital that's on mount royal it's on a hill so it has a good view of the horizon and it faces the geographical east um so you know i i have an image of you know my mother giving birth and me being handed to her and she could look out the window and the sun is just coming up over the horizon this even though the sun and when the sun is that close to the, the horizon the sky is already light you right. know the sun the ball might not be in eyesight but the sky is light mm -hmm. so in that sense it's a you know it's the morning is there right and you so you imagine like leo is rising and there's like a halo above your head and yeah yeah exactly yeah. angels are singing and all that so stuff. the sky yeah. the clouds part in the sky yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. As every, every leo rising like <laughs> yeah, imagines yeah, that's sure how sure. their birth went yeah. um all right how, what, how many years did you spend in cumberland at project hindsight okay so um in 2001 um, in June, I, I went back to New York. I was living in Holland, but I had a storage locker stuff in New York, and I went to go get all my stuff and bring it to Holland. And because I was in the States, I went and uh, visited the folks at Hindsight. Um, so this is June to July of 2001, and um, Demetra George was there. Uh, the night I arrived, she had only just got there, and I'm very—I remember very well—sitting um, on that great porch <clears throat> at the, um, the the house, the back porch, the back porch, and it was just Schmidt, Demetra, and I. And Schmidt and I had to break the news to Demetra that um, she had the sun in the first house now and not the twelfth, because she's like me, a Leo sun, Leo rising, but in her case, the sun is visibly above the horizon and therefore um using a, a dynamic house system she would be a 12th house sun right so as a modern astrologer she'd always thought she she had always thought of herself as a 12th house sun right yeah when you look at that chart so yeah that was kind of fun i mean and i was kind of i, I was in awe of her um because I, I you know her asteroids book is uh really something and she continued to impress us with um her asteroid work that's actually really funny. All three of you are, would be Leo Risings because right. Schmidt was also Leo Rising. That's right. So it's quite the quite the drinking party. Um, right. I always enjoyed that. Um, and Alan White was there. He wasn't there that first night, but he he drove up and he gave an amazing talk uh, where he came very close to predicting nine eleven. This would have been because uh, there was an eclipse at zero Cancer. This would have been, well, the, the uh, solstice. Uh, like I said, I was there in late June, early July. So he talked about this eclipse, and he said when Saturn reaches zero cancer, he, he predicted dire things for the United States. And he was right in a sense, because when Saturn made the ingress to cancer, that, that would be in 2003, when the Gulf War would really start to you know go poorly after initial feeling of success. Um, but what, what, if, if he had just thought a little harder, he would have remembered, oh, actually, there's a Mars retrograde in Sagittarius now. And after it goes direct, it's going to go into Capricorn. And when it hits zero Capricorn, maybe that's when this eclipse gets triggered. And maybe that's when America's in trouble. In which, and if he had thought like that, he would have predicted 9-11 within a day. Because it was right after Mars ingressed into Capricorn. That's right. Like if you look at the nine eleven chart, I think Mars is at maybe one degree Capricorn, two degrees Capricorn, something no, no later than that. Mm. 
So, yeah, I mean, that was impressive too. You know, it was the kind of thing where, like, it doesn't matter if you don't get the prediction. You see that it's kind of like math, you know, like if you get the wrong answer, but you did all the right work, you just forgot to carry the two or something like that. It's kind of that kind of mistake. And part of the lesson also is just that eclipses can activate degrees or mark certain degrees, which can get activated later by certain transits when they pass those degrees. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the, I mean, he was already thinking that way, but he was just thinking about the Saturn conjunction to zero Cancer and not the Mars opposition from zero Capricorn. Mm. So, um, Really, it was as simple as that. Yeah. So, so that was, I mean, that was an important visit. Um, and, you, and you're literally there witnessing then Demetrius starting to learn Hellenistic astrology right. for the first time because yeah. she's like literally having to cope with the idea that her son is in the first house instead of the 12th house. Right. I mean, Demetra did have the uh, advantage. She'd been um, in university studying Greek. So she was in her own way preparing for this. Um, right. And there's a lot to be said for learning Greek before you try to learn Hellenistic astrology, even though it's a, it's a tougher, um, more uphill climb, I suppose. I mean, even yeah. I, I'm looking at your English lexicon. I remember I had one of those in Holland, the Little and Scott ones. I didn't get to do very much with it, alas. I'm not the, the Greek scholar you and Demetra uh, and the likes of you are. But um, yeah, that was, you know, um, that was, I did witness her sort of being indoctrinated, if you will. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a great time. So from there, um, 2001 went into 2002, and um, eventually the Dutch girlfriend and I sort of grew apart, and I left and I moved to England. I was still working for Astral Live Link, but I figured, you know, um, maybe try hanging out in England for a little while while I did this phone job. Um, and that was great. I, I wound up in Brighton, England. Um, I was basically sort of legally squatting, if you will, in a building that it, it had been an internet cafe, but the lease was running out, but there were a few months to go. So the guy who ran the cafe sort of let me live there to look after his, his gear that was still in this closed down internet cafe. So I literally, I had a, a computer with my solar fire loaded on it and a couch that I could sleep on. And all I did morning to night, I mean, I did my, my readings for Astral Live Link to sort of, you know, feed myself. And then the rest of the time, I just really got serious about my database. Like that mm -hmm. was when it, I'd been, up until that point, I'd just been collecting charts and putting them in files. But it was in this period in Brighton in 2002 that I, I was like, oh, this can be like a, a thing, an entity, you know, it's not just sort of random bits of information. The thing has a, a potential cohesion to it. And so I got very serious. I spent the, the um, winter of 2002 and spring of 2003 um, really adding a lot to this database. And this was also when I was really starting to do what I mentioned earlier, which was uh, um, branch out, not just sort of study the, the people I was a fan of, but, you know, Watergate. I remember I was studying, it was 2002, so it was the 30th anniversary of Watergate. So like, oh yeah, why don't I study the astrology of Watergate? Not just Richard Nixon's chart, but all his staff who were, you know, wound up going to prison and, and the, the, the chronology of all the events, the, the break-in, the finding out about the tapes, firing this guy, firing that guy, getting, you know, uh, the, the, the full chronology that anyone who knows about Watergate would know about right up until his resignation, just sort of like getting that. And then that branched out further into me studying, you know, 
Richard Nixon's entire life, his marriage, his kids, his time as a, as a congressman, as a senator, as vice president, so on and so forth, right mm -hmm. up into his death. Um, so, you know, that gave me the, that was one of the, those early sort of instances of me, like, like, it doesn't matter. I don't have to like the guy, um, in order to, um, sort of walk in his shoes astrologically and, and, um, learn what I can. Right. So you recommend, like every astrologer does that, every astrologer builds their own personal database to some extent of sure. charts of people they know or charts of things that have happened in their life. But that's something you really recommend that people, individual students should do somewhat more systematically. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, I, you know, I just, I advocate it. You know, I don't know if they should do it, but it seems to me like they should. You know, I mean, what, if anyone wants to know what I think, that is what I think. Yeah. I mean, what would you recommend, or what what would the directive be, or what would the instructions be, if somebody wanted to start doing that for themselves, or, or building their own database or da or databases? Um. Well, I I certainly advocate breaking out of the comfort zone of just you know not just sort of studying the subjects that you already know and love, but, but try to broaden your horizons. Uh, um, you know, the things I've learned about, uh, the history of politics, the history of art since I've taken this approach. I mean, it, there's no comparison to, you know, I mean, I used to be this person who thought he knew it all, but I, all I knew was the stuff that I knew everything about the things I loved that I had a real personal attachment to. Right. But yeah. I mean, if, if a person, let's say somebody just started studying astrology yesterday mm. and like they have to start from square one, I um, guess square one is like just telling them you should start building a database and collecting charts and birth times from everybody you know, yeah. essentially. Learn, so, your, learn your parents, your siblings, your, your friends, your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whoever. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you, you start with them. You start with yourself, obviously. You know, that's, that's an important one. But you don't want to. Um, some astrologers sort of get stuck in that one, you know. They, um, at at some point, you, you can only do so much for yourself as your own astrologer. I mean, you, you keep learning as you go through life, of course. But um, and you're saving a chart. Like every time an important event happens in your life, you'll save a time chart, ideally for um, that event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and for the you know the people you know, I was I was always interested in knowing the world around me. So I spent a lot more time studying charts of people who you know I'm not personally acquainted with. Your Jimi Hendrixes and your whoever. What um, would you do when you have a celebrity? Like, what are you doing, or what does that look like for somebody that doesn't understand your process, or what one of your databases looks like? Um, yeah, it's it's uh, for anyone, whether it's a, a Richard Nixon or a Jimi Hendrix or whoever. Um, it's a it's a file in Solar Fire with that person's name and every possible natal and event chart I can find that's you know documented. Um, if I don't have a birth time for the person, I'll still enter the birthday with a noon excuse me a noon chart, which is still useful to a degree. Um, obviously, it's more useful to have proper you know timed horoscopes. 
but you work with what you have. You can still learn from dates, uh, especially if they're certain, like, you know, I have Jimi Hendrix's birth time, but, you know, if I want to know the musicians he played with, I don't have their birth times, but it's still worth knowing, you know, that, that one of them had Jupiter in Jimmy's seventh house, and maybe that's why their musical sinistry was, you know, so it's still useful in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, and you're putting notes on each file. On each file. With, a, like, a rod and rating, and also custom notes with the source of the, the birth information. Yeah. Yeah. And then the event stuff, which I get from books or, you know, sometimes websites, I prefer books, but in the early days it was more, you know, fan sites and stuff. Um, so like, for instance, you know, like I said, with, with Richard Nixon, I mean, there's, you know, events in, a, in his presidency that, you know, like, there's a, chron a chronological list of, of events in his life. And you can enter a chart for each one of those, you know, mm -hmm. every press conference that was important or every new sort of twist and turn. Um, look at the birth charts, not just of his, you know, his staff and his cabinet, but also his enemies, you know, Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, you know, uh, 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 Daniel, what's his name? The, 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 the guy who was the, who published the Pentagon papers, uh, names on the tip of my tongue. Um, you know, all these people, you know, so his, his friends, his anima, enemies, his, his allies, Brezhnev, Mao, you know, they wind up coming into the Richard Nixon picture. Um, or if it's Jimi Hendrix, you know, um, musicians like him, um, there's all kinds of published material about when they, you know, when he played every concert he played and the dates and, and how they went, you know, did, did he... Was it a well-received show or, or did something go wrong technically that, that frustrated him? Or was he getting along with his girlfriend or his musicians or was he not? Um, and every recording session, you know, when did he write Purple Haze? When did he record Purple Haze? That kind of information is often available. In his case, it is. So all this sort of comes in. So I wind up sort of recreating the chronology of the person's life in a solar fire file. And then when I have that file, I can do searches. I can say, okay, out of all these, you know, charts in this file, how many of them have Jupiter and Libra or, you know, Mars and Scorpio mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, or Mars square Venus or Sun trine Jupiter, whatever I want to look for. I can then search this file and get a lot of information, learn a lot about how astrology really works in this bigger picture outside the sort of the... Um, ordinary limitations of, of your standard horoscopic natal chart reading. Yeah. When we did an episode talking about the chart of Kurt Cobain like a few months ago for an episode of the Casual Astrology podcast for patrons, we were going through your Nirvana file and your Kurt Cobain file, and it just had um, dates of the shows that they had done yeah. and like hundreds of entries for when they had played different shows in different cities and like the time and the date that the show started and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes you have the time or sometimes you're guessing, well, the show probably started at 9 PM and, or, you know, sometimes you're approximating the time. If you have the time, great. If you don't, you can still sort of approximate it. It's still worth knowing the transits, uh, but also the details, you know, when did they play smells like teen spirit for the first time live? And hmm. what, you know, when did he first meet Courtney love? When did he first meet Dave Grohl? You know, and, and there's charts for all that, you know, um, hmm. So, yeah, and then you just get this whole picture of, of everything related to his life that you right. can come up with. Or like recording dates for when they recorded certain yeah. um, songs or certain albums. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in his case, it's not as broken down as, say, Jimi Hendrix or the Beatles, where you really know that, like, 
on January 2nd at 2 p.m. such and such song was recorded. But you do know that like within a, a period of three weeks, you know, the album was recorded and at least you can sort of you, you work with what you have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's something. And now you have just like a ton of different files like that. And that's something we were talking about recently. And hopefully we can do it at some point is like make those available or yeah. for you to like sell some of those as databases that people could use and then run searches through or draw on some of your research that you've done in those different databases, um, you know, for different things they might be interested in studying. Yeah. 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 Um, that's absolutely something I'm, I'm interested in doing. I'd like it, you know, it, it's the kind of resource that would be useful, I think, to a lot of astrology students. Because um, that was part of the role that you played at Hindsight when I got there in 2005, 2004, yeah, 2005 was we were doing study sessions of applying and starting to learn about some of these astrological techniques like zodiac releasing and really starting to learn how they worked and how to apply them and you would often be the go-to guy for you know what birth charts should we use and knowing things about the biography of certain things and like what when things were lining up versus when things weren't lining up and things like that yeah 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 it became useful i mean that was um after I came back from England in 2003, I hung around Montreal for a year. I was still working for Astral Live Link. Um, I took a few university history classes, but I was really sort of past sitting in classrooms anymore. Decided I would just sort of, you know, read my own books and, and you know, do, do that study on my own. Uh, and then 2004, I wound up going back down to Cumberland for a visit. And it was then that I was invited to go stay there. When in 2004? Well, I went to visit around June of 2004, and that was mm -hmm. when I was introduced to Mark Kunzel, who would become the next president of the AYA. We, we, this is, it was during that year that I was back in Montreal after England that we started the whole AYA thing. I had okay. met Moses and Kelly online when I was still living in Brighton, but then I moved back to Montreal, and that was when the AYA was formed in 2003, 2004. And so in June of 2004, I went down to Cumberland. I was introduced to Mark Kunzel. Um, who was doing sort of like tech stuff for Project Hindsight. He was, and, and he would be a president of AYA before you. I yeah, think. he was like the second president. Yeah, yeah. after and Moses, yeah. I guess I turned, took over from him. Right, because he was moving to Hawaii and all this stuff. And, and you know, it just he was not in a space where he could do it. Yeah. Um, he designed some of the early diagrams for Project Hindsight that were really important, like illustrations for some of the concepts. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he was really good for that. Um, and he was one of my first uh, Photoshop teachers, which was a new technology to me at the time. Mm. Um, so that was in June of 2004. And um, I was invited. And I, I still remember in November of 2004, right when Bush was reelected, I took a Greyhound down to D.C. where Kunzel lived. And then the two of us drove down to Florida where we had the... Um, incorporation meeting for project uh, for AYA where I, I I met a lot of them for the first time in person these people that I'd been uh, collaborating with to, to start the group I already knew Demetra Demetra was there um, but people like Michelle Gould and, and uh, Rebecca Crane uh, Donna Youngblood people who I'm still friends with today we you know we all met up and, and I think on the AYA website there's still a photo of us on the beach from that time mm. um, and then from there Mark and I drove from Florida uh, back up to Cumberland, and that was when I, I moved into the house up the street from Project Hindsight, the place I was living when I met you the following spring. Okay, so you were only there for about a year then before I showed up 
and move to Project Hindsight? Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I wanted to go through some other topics here that we had lined up. Um, one of them is way back in episode, was it 10? Let's see. No, episode 11 of the Astrology Podcast released September 16th, 2013. Um, was titled The Astrology of Uranus in the United States, where we went over your book, Uranus USA, Astrology Looks at the First Planet and Nation of the New World. There's a copy of a highly rare book at this point, because it's not still in print, right? No, it's not in print. Okay. Uh, I am working on a second edition, which will be considerably thicker than this. Okay. Uh, this was always meant to be... Um, it's like a sketchbook of a of a larger work, you mm -hmm. know. This was always meant to be like a sliver of one chapter of a of a larger work, um, which indeed is is going to be the case. Um, yeah, because there's a, a lot lot more I can say on the subject. This just sort of touched on some of the different uh, historical and astrological angles that I'm pursuing. So, and the book was about primarily the Uranus returns of the United States, right? Uh, it, it, yeah. Um, the, the premise of the, the book has three chapters. Um, and um, the, the three chapters cover three periods in history, in American history, when Uranus, transiting Uranus, was in tropical Gemini. Um, basically, the, chapter one covers the years 1774 to 1782, which is the duration of the American Revolutionary War. That was Uranus and Gemini. Um, the second chapter covers the years 1858 to 1865, which goes from the Lincoln-Douglas debates through the entirety of the American Civil War. And then chapter three covers the years 1941 to 1949 which covers the duration of American involvement in the Second World War, and then the early years of the Cold War, when America was the only superpower. Um, and the, the last uh, page in the last chapter covers the formation of NATO, which seems rather prescient now. <laughs> um, so it was, I mean, this, um, the observation wasn't original. Uh, Luke Broughton and later Evangeline Adams both made a point of, uh, although both of them lived before the Second World War, uh, both of them made the observation that um, transiting Uranus had been in Gemini for the entirety of the Revolutionary War and the Civil War in the respective 18th and 19th centuries. Right, Even which was itself a Uranus return. Because yeah. Uranus is on an 84-year cycle and comes back to where it started about every 84 years. Every 84 years. It spends seven years in each of the 12 tropical signs. So, um, Here's the Sibley chart where for the Declaration of, the End of Independence, July 4th, 1776, where Uranus is at eight degrees of Gemini. Yeah. So one of the points, I mean, that's one point is just almost regardless of what chart you use for the founding of the United States, pretty much all of them during that time period, it was in Gemini for like seven years around that time period. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in, in this volume, I didn't even, I didn't mention the Sibley chart or July the 4th even. 
Um, I didn't feel I had to. I mean, in, in a in a broader work, I think it'll naturally it'll come up. I mean, are um, you agnostic on the? Do you have a strong opinion on the like this is the chart of America thing, or are you I'd agnostic? Yeah, I'd say I'm agnostic on it. Um, I'm I'm even I'm I'm agnostic on the idea of national charts altogether. I mean, I think it's important to, you know, I, I keep a database of events, so obviously. Um, the 4th of July, 1776 is an important date, um, as is the 2nd of July, 1776. Um, what was the 2nd of July? Well, that's when, that's when the, the declaration was uh, really completed, so to speak. You know, uh, It was signed intermittently, like you know, different delegates signed it over the course, I think, of the next month or two. Mm. Um, but that's just, I mean, I think horoscopic astrologers are... There's that really, before we go there, there's that really funny anecdote about John Adams. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Where um, John Adams believed that July 2nd was the correct date for the birth of American independence. And he would repeatedly turn down in invitations to attend July 4th celebrations in protest. Um, but then John, both John Adams and John and Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, both died on July fourth, eighteen twenty six, the fiftieth anniversary of the signing of the Declaration. Right, exactly fifty <laughs> years after the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. So I, I feel like uh, Adams lost that debate. Like if you <laughs> if you die, like exactly on the. Other one, you know, Adams. Adams was an impressive man in many, many regards. But he, it's funny how he would wind up on the sort of lose. You know, he's the first one-term president, for instance. He's just he, you know, he the, he didn't win every battle. That's that's one thing you can say for him. Mm. And his very amazing son, and his very amazing grandson, and his very amazing great grandson of the the Adams family. Da -da -da -da. Um, not not so, that Adams family. Not that Adams family, okay. but the, it's it's a really interesting uh, um, family dynasty in American political history. Um, and did it turn out that Evangeline Adams was roughly related to him somehow? I know it's. I've seen that claim made. I I think it's not so. Uh, it, uh, forgive me if if I'm if I'm wrong about that. Right. Uh, it's not fresh in my memory bank right now. I'm gonna get a very strongly worded letter from like Karen Christina. <laughs> well, she's the one. Have you? You've had her on the program, haven't you? No, I haven't. Oh. I w wanted to because I did an Evangeline Adams episode, but she does not. She doesn't like doing interviews or sitting for like long periods. Oh, uh, I see. So Christopher right. Renstrom joined me to as like a sit-in for her. Uh, at her blessing like, okay. for that episode. Well, he would be he would be the one to know. He can Christopher, you can slap me in the face if I'm wrong about Evangeline Adams not being related to the political Adams. And I think we actually discussed this in that episode, so okay. I'll have to go back and listen for the answer. Yeah, and I I think I saw that episode, and even still, the the information hasn't stayed with me. So yeah, there you go. So um, founding of countries, like you're a little you're agnostic on founding charts in general, and yet yeah. there's something to this. Obviously, there's some kind of like foundational chart going on in this seven year period where Uranus clearly in coming back the first time, eighty four years later, coincide with the Civil War, and then the second time coinciding with World War II. Those are obviously yeah. huge turning points in American history that are being tied back to some original foundation chart of some sort. Sure, and actually, I mean. Even the the Revolutionary War and the transit of Uranus and Gemini then that was a Uranus return of the British Glorious Revolution at the end of the seventeenth century, which is really like I mean a very important 
um, precedent to the American Revolutionary War in the sense of, of uh, the creation of Western democracy. Mm. Uh, you would not have, you know, you would not have, I think, a revolutionary war if the Glorious Revolution hadn't happened in the 1690s. Um, so there, yeah, there's, but that's kind of my point is there's something broader about, um, about this is true of um, when you study synodic cycles uh, in history. Um, it's not that natal, you know, natal charts for countries aren't useful, but they become kind of a crutch, I find. Um, for astrologers who really want to seriously study histories. I'll give you, a, a, I mean, the thing about the United States is you do have this, I mean, that's a very sort of, relative to most countries, it's a very clear-cut example because you have like this new country founded and there's, you know, one constitution that, um, as we've seen even lately, some people are very intent on always sticking to to the letter. Right. Um, you know, it's it's sort of it's it's very sort of cut and dry. But let me give you some other examples. Um, France, since the you know French Revolution in the 1780s and 90s, um, France has had two empires and five republics since 1789, since since Bastille Day. Um, you know, now we can we can use the most recent the the Fifth Republic chart, which is like early 1959. But is that really a chart for France? Like, you know, is that really a, a chart that just speaks about France as a nation? Uh, you know, as opposed to well, what it really, you know, addresses is the 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 new republic that De Gaulle uh, formed when when he took over the presidency in the late fifties in the midst of the Algerian war and all that. But obviously France has a much bigger history. And and to, to sort of look at the chart of France for 1959, or even just to look at the French Revolutionary chart, even, you know, even to go back to what, if you want to go to Bastille Day or, or uh, the famous tennis, tennis coat oath of 1789 or whatever starting point you want to use, um, you're still arriving in the middle of a, of a much bigger story. Mm -hmm. um, ditto for Russia. You know, um, I love studying the history of Russia. And, you know, but, but, you know, do we really want to just look at a chart for the foundation of the new republic in the 1990s? Um, oh, right, like 19, the 1990 chart? Yeah. Um, you know, was really Russia, um, you know, there are things that you can do using synodic cycles that address the sort of the greater history of Russia that incorporates not just the Republic, but the Soviet era, the era of the Romanovs and the era of Ivan the Terrible and so on and so forth. And you just, you know, to my mind, again, it's a, it's a matter for, uh, it's a matter of um, getting the most bang for your buck, uh, looking at things in really sort of broad terms so that you're not sort of fixated on these sort of frankly smaller ideas when it comes to, I mean, it's, it's different with a human being. You know, a human being is born, they've got a natal chart, and that really is, that marks a, a beginning of, of, of an entire life, you know, until the person dies. So that really is something that you can bookend in, a very, in very finite terms. Yeah. Um, Although it gets a little muddy when like people's charts like continue working sometimes after they die. That does happen. No, but, no, sure, but sure, but it's like still you know bi biologically. Yeah, humans. but 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 at that point after the person's dead, it's it's working in a in the sense of a legacy. Right. You know that that is that is something that happens and it's and it's worth looking at. But even then, you know, um, uh, 
the life of the person, the actual life is is still this very finite and identifiable, identifiably finite period of time. Yeah, although it's interesting. I mean, on the other side, flip side of the coin, or to push back a little bit, like with Russia, for example, seeing um, that pile up in Capricorn when at the fall of the Soviet Union, and then yeah. the creation of the you know experiment and like having a democracy there, sure. and then now having the Saturn return of all of that, like thirty years later, and essentially watching in real time the end of that experiment of having a democracy. I'm so glad you brought up Capricorn because in the broader Uranus work, where I'm not just looking at Uranus USA, but let's say Uranus USSR, if you want, um, <clears throat> go back and look at the other times Uranus has been in Capricorn in Russian history, hmm. and you will find, um, you know, uh, Tsar Alexander I, who was a Capricorn son, first he had Saturn in Capricorn conjunct his son when he burned down Moscow with Napoleon's invasion. Hmm. Okay, which was actually an old Russian technique to fight off the Mongols. You know, the Mongols would invade, they would just burn their wooden town and leave. Like, you know, you're not taking anything, you know, which is, um, yeah, uh, something to take note of, actually. It's an old Russian approach to invasion. So, um, but then Uranus went into Capricorn in the 1820s when Uranus is conjunct Alexander's son, and he's in the middle of, he's basically going from being. A political liberal to a political conservative. Just you know, he's part of the movement, uh, the concert of Europe. That's that's intent on ending revolutionary uprisings in Europe. And Russia becomes like sort of the policeman for that, uh, going right up through the you know to the eighteen forty uh, revolutions that happen all over Europe. So um, Uranus was in Capricorn in the eighteen twenties. This very important part where Russia sort of established itself as a as a prominent European power in the concert of Europe in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and then the next time Uranus is in Capricorn starts in 1905, the beginning of the, the, the first part of the Russian Revolution. I mean, okay, the, you know, we all know the 1917 revolution that, that overthrew the Romanovs, but that revolution really began in 1905 in the midst of the, the war with Japan. Mm. Um, and that's when Uranus goes into Capricorn. Um, and so you, you, what you see with, with Russia is whenever Uranus is in Capricorn, something happens to Russia, whether it's in the Romanov era, in the Soviet era, or, you know, well, I guess it'll be a while before we see what it does uh, here. But like you mentioned, Saturn being in Capricorn also triggers this. But um, the, Russia has a very similar relationship to Uranus being in tropical Capricorn that the United States does when Uranus is in Gemini. Uh, effectively, the country sort of reinvents itself, reinvents itself in some way. Uh, during these periods, mm. in this really striking way. Um, similarly, for France, you know, um, Uranus was in Leo um, during the, the the first part of the French Revolution, the most famous and bloody part, prior to um, you know Napoleon's takeover. Mm. Uh, and in fact, Napole Uranus was conjunct Napoleon's Leo son when he moved with his family to France and began his upward climb to uh, uh, taking over. Um, and then if you jump ahead to the 1870s, Uranus goes into Leo right after the Franco-Prussian War, where they lose Alsace-Lorraine, and they become a, the, the, the Third Republic is established. Mm -hmm. um, 
in the 1870s, Uranus goes through Leo when really there's, there's uh, after the Third Republic is, is established, it's very tenuous, but it's when Uranus is, is in Leo that the, the sort of the liberals and the royalists fight it out and the liberals take over and there's not going to be a, a king of France ever again or an emperor of France ever again. And then in the 1950s, when de Gaulle comes up, Uranus is in Leo, when, when de Gaulle takes over and recreates France in his image and a new sort of quasi-royalist image, you know, he creates a, a much stronger French presidency, which is, you know, for the first time you have like a sort of strong man leading France, go, you know, for the first time since before the Franco-Prussian War. Mm -hmm. So uh, long story short, I'm sorry to go into all this, but like, you know, you can make charts for France or for Russia or for the United States, but there is, if you, if you just put the chart aside or you, you at least consider that chart in a, in context of a broader picture, uh, it's worth looking at these planetary cycles and, and seeing how a region responds to them over multiple returns, because there really is something to draw from that, that you just won't get. If all you do is sort of, you know, spend all your time fighting about whether or not the United States has a Sagittarius or a Gemini rising. Yeah, there has been in modern astrology this obsession with like coming up with the singular, singular correct chart for things like like the United States, right? And then arguing about that or defending that or you know other entities like that. Yeah, um, yeah, but there, so, there's still something interesting about sometimes shorter term cycles, because that's a good point that there's oftentimes, that's one of the issues with countries and longer term historical things is there's much larger term, longer term cycles that are operating that you may not even be aware of, or that you may only notice if you're looking at really large spans of time. Um, they may go back far before any foundational charts that you look at or even have dates for, but then sometimes it is still relevant to look at um, you know more recent foundations of recent, sure. you know, versions of a country, because um, sometimes that can create some sort of new foundational chart that is responding to certain transits. Like you know, because one of the things I was trying to figure out with Russia recently was that Venus retrograde that happened earlier this year in Capricorn, yeah. and obviously was so important, and that had happened almost exactly eight years after the first. Um, you know, invasion of Ukraine. Of the, Ukraine, yeah. Initial invasion, sure. uh, which wasn't a surprise to me because that that Venus retrograde actually has a profound history in Russian history. Lenin was born during that same Venus retrograde phase. He was, bo he was born after Venus had stationed direct, but when it was still in that in the period I identify as being part of the phase, um, so was Khrushchev. You know, um, and and a, a lot of other important Russian ev of events have happened during that that same part of the Venus retrograde cycle that currently happens in Capricorn. It used to happen in Aquarius and back in the 19th century, it used to happen in Pisces, which is where it was when Lenin was born. Um, so yeah, but uh, let me be clear, just going back to your point, um, this is not me saying, hey folks, you know, forget about national charts altogether, just drop the whole idea, you know, it's useless. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, sure, it's, it's, it's interesting, it's worthwhile, it's relevant, it can be useful. Uh, but if it's all that you're using, if it's all that you know, if it if it defines the parameters of how you approach all your mundane work relative to a given country, m my experience tells me you're you're really limiting yourself, and that it's worth contemplating this bigger picture. Yeah, and sometimes maybe it can distract you from seeing longer term cycles that may be operating outside of the bounds of just some singular foundation chart. Yeah. 
Um, so that brings up a lot of your research, a lot of your focus, especially over the past 10 years, has been identifying these Venus retrograde cycles that repeat every eight years. And for a period of time, they tend to happen in the same signs, but because it shifts about two degrees every eight years, they don't stay in the same signs. But you've found a way to categorize those and focus in on those cycles that recur every eight years, regardless of the sign placement. And that's something you've really been focused on over the past decade. Yeah, yeah. Um, Venus is really interesting that way. I mean, I'm, I'm also interested in the synodic cycle of Mars. And obviously, this, the cycle of Uranus is, is really vital to me. But uh, there is something special about Venus because it does repeat itself every eight years. Um, Although, like you said, it switches signs. Every 100, 120 years, Venus will move backward one entire um, zodiacal sign. Uh, so, yes, the, the Venus retrograde that just happened in Capricorn, if, if you go back even just a few years, uh, even as just back to the 1990s, it used to happen in Aquarius going into, a, in, oh, into right. Capricorn. Yeah. And then if you go into the you know uh, 19th century... Um, it was in Pisces, and before that, in the 18th century, it was in Aries. You know, so just gradually over time, it moves backward. But yeah, I I designed a a, a model of the Venus synodic cycle itself, so that I don't have to be tethered to the sign, so that I can just watch the cycle itself over periods of hundreds of years. Because I've found that it's actually really, really. Uh, uh, it, useful to do that. That I get something out of it that I wouldn't get if I was just looking at Venus in this sign or that sign. Right. So which uh, we've got some illustrations or a video which would be good to introduce people to this approach. Well, let's let's start, start let's start with the video. Okay. Cuz the video explains and I'll I'll do my best to narrate it as you play the little All right, it's going. Okay. So imagine this circle. This circle represents 2920 days, which is 8 years minus 2 days. Okay. Okay. Now, if you dis divide the cycle into 10 equal parts, what you get now, maybe pause the video for a second, what you get here is a model of all the different uh, um, um, periods of where, where Venus is a morning star and evening, evening star. So you can see there are five white sections and five black sections, each marked A, B, C, D, and E. Okay. Now, where a black section turns to a white section, that's where you have um, a, um, an, what we call an interior or inferior conjunction of Venus. When Venus is at its closest to Earth and therefore appears to be going retrograde as it makes a conjunction to the Sun. And then conversely, wherever you see a, um, a white phase going into a black phase, that means you're having an exterior or superior conjunction when Venus is... Um, making a conjunction to the sun, but but on the other, it's on the other side of the sun. So it's actually moving very fast and it's not retrograde. All right. So yeah, split these parts into alternating black and white sections and you have reproduced the elegant design of the Venus and Odex cycle. So remember that circle represents eight years minus two days, 2,920 days. Mm -hmm. And um, now if we go to the next, yeah, maybe continue the video and, and I'll... Okay, so here we have the Earth and the Sun. We can see that the the pattern, you know, the 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 pattern of um, path of the Earth's orbit around the Sun. Now, inside that, we have the orbit of Venus. Uh, there we are. Venus's orbit is that inner circle. 
So you can see the exterior conjunction, like I was saying, is when Venus is on the opposite side of the sun from Earth. All right, so Sun-Venus exterior conjunctions, or some, they're often called superior conjunctions, occur when Venus is at its greatest distance from the Earth uh, on the opposite side of the Sun. And then you have the interior conjunction. This is when Venus is making its retrograde. So Venus is it's making an interior or an inferior conjunction uh, when Venus is closest to the, you know, the Earth and between the Earth and the Sun. So when Venus is retrograde, it's always closest, closest to us. Yeah. And when Venus is direct and conjunct the Sun, it's always furthest from us? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, so, as the video continues, sorry, it's maybe a bit slow. All right, so we can divide these into the, now we see the white and black being divided because whenever there's an exterior conjunction, we go from white to black. We go from rising to setting, basically, from morning star to evening star. Okay. Um, you know, including the period where, where, um, you know, Venus is, is too close to the sun to be visible, but just, you know, in terms of splitting the cycle in half, that's what we get. And then at the bottom, we get the interior conjunctions when it goes, you know, Venus is retrograde, so it's going from an evening star back to a morning star. Which side, which color is morning star and which is evening again? Uh, it's pretty easy. White is morning okay. or rising and black is evening or setting. So okay. I, I, I feel I chose the colors pretty, you know, uh, self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. All right, so yeah, setting phases begin following an exterior conjunction. Excuse me. Um, rising phases begin following an interior conjunction. So from here, um, you can also divide the 2,920-day cycle into 20 parts, averaging 146 days each. Um, and this is, this is what I call the intervals. Um, so every every interval is about five percent of total time, and that the reason I mention that is because I just want to give a sense of how small, what a small part of the overall eight year cycle these represent. So we have the white intervals. This is when Venus is a morning star. They 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 like I said, the average is one hundred forty six days, but they can be as short as one hundred forty one and as long as one hundred fifty one. So there's a five day sort of grace period in terms of how long or short they can be. Um, and when during the white intervals, Venus is gradually accelerating. It's heading towards its exterior conjunction. It's getting closer to the sun, but not retrograde, you know, on the opposite side of Earth. Mm-hmm. So those are the white intervals. Next, we have the blue intervals. When Venus makes its exterior conjunction, you know, you can see here in the video, Venus is, is moving past the sun very quickly. These are always 146 days long. Uh, it's when Venus goes from morning to evening star. It's fast direct mo- uh, motion. And the exterior conjunction is right at the the center of the interval. So it's right in the middle of the blue. In fact, th- that's how I draw the blue interval is I, I take the exterior conjunction and I draw like 73 days on either side of it, if you know what I mean, to total 146. Okay. Okay. Um, so then following the blue intervals, the black intervals. Again, they can last 141 to 151 days. This is an evening star or setting Venus, and it's gradually decelerating because it's heading back towards its eventual next retrograde. Hmm. Uh, It's getting closer to Earth. Finally, we have the red intervals. These are where the retrogrades happen. So these are, again, 146 days. It's when Venus goes from evening to morning star, slow retrograde motion. So Venus is slowing down. It stops. It changes direction, and then it slows down and stops again. 
Um, and just like with the blue intervals, the red intervals are drawn by using the interior conjunction right at the center, and then the boundaries are 73 days on either side of the center. On either side of the center of the conjunction with the sun? Yeah. And does that, so that encompasses the stationary, the exactly. retrograde station and the direct station? Exactly, within the interval. Does it go beyond that? Or? It does. Uh, in fact, as it happens, um, the beginning and ending of the red interval coincides within about a day of Venus being at its greatest elongation from the sun in the west and then in the east. Okay. How far usually on average is the greatest elongation from the actual station date though? About 50 to 51 days. Okay. Before and after. So you're so including some like shadow periods, basically. It's a bit broader than the shadow period, but again, this this is something this has to do with Venus's visibility. Hmm. So in a very natural way, even though I didn't design it this way, I mean the, the cosmos designed it this way. But remember, these are pretty even, relatively even divisions of the eight-year cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the same way that we have you know twelve months in a year that just happen to sort of you know, fit in our calendar system. Um, and as it happens, this this small 5% section of the eight-year cycle um, begins pretty, like, um, within a day of the greatest elongation and then covers the entire, like, retrograde motion, direct motion, and then it ends within about a day of its other greatest elongation in the east, the, the greatest distance Venus has from the sun. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, um, yeah, if you measure it from greatest elongation to greatest elongation, it encompasses the whole retrograde motion in the middle of it. So again, it's not just a matter of Venus um, covering a certain section of degrees, but it's like this greater sort of portion of its overall cycle when it's um, got this relationship to the sun. It's visual. Okay. I mean, that's, that's a big part of the point of all this is is the different ways Venus appears in the sky. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are five of each of these. Now, if you if you keep the video going, you'll see how I um, I have. You can see where the intervals are and how they fit. You know, relative to uh, the Earth, the Sun, the exterior conjunction, the interior conjunction. You can see how that all sort of plays out together, how it all incorporates together. Um, and then I'm going to add the, the evening and morning star. I think it'll come up shortly in the video. It's moving a bit slow, I know. There we are. So you see that outer rim, which just covers like where we started, where you just have the, uh, uh, the rising and setting phases, mm -hmm. the white and black. Okay. And you can see how like you, you know, the, the white goes to black in the middle of the blue interval and black goes to white in the middle of the red interval. So, like I said, that's where the that's where the conjunctions are, the interior and exterior conjunctions. And you can see, again, I've added the greatest elongation, the western and eastern. You can see how they coincide with the boundaries of the red intervals. Mm -hmm. OK, so that that diagram explains what I've been trying to uh, explain verbally for the past five minutes. Yeah. So you've just taken the Venus. Uh, entire Venus cycle, and you've been able to divide it up into sections. Yeah. And then you've given names to each of these sections, which allows you to then refer to them in shorthand using right. your system. And um, 
and then be able to refer to them over the course of a person's lifetime or over the course of a, a country's a country. life. Right, exactly. So now you, you, we're, we're looking at the diagram of the, of the phases and the intervals together. And you can see how, they, again, that whole circle represents eight years minus two days. That's the main thing to remember. So every eight years, Venus goes through those 20 intervals and those 10 phases. So through this over, entire cycle? Yeah. Okay. So um, the Venus retrograde in Capricorn that we just had, that's what I call the red four. So look at the bottom right corner and you see the red four, right? Mm -hmm. and, and when Venus was conjunct the sun uh, in the middle of the Venus retrograde, that's when it went from the, the black E to the white C. I mean, before before you even get to the transition, just talk about like a red four, for example, and how you would use that as shorthand to refer to like a sequence. Okay. Like, um, well, for instance, I mean, you you were you were getting to this yourself. Um, the invasion of Ukraine during the Venus retrograde that was in the middle of a red four, and whereas eight years earlier when they annexed the Crimea, that was also a red four. But as it happens, the period when Venus goes from black five to red four is always huge in Russian history. Um, the October Revolution in 1917 happened during the black five and the, the, the early part when the Soviets, like right after the revolution, when they negotiated with Germany to get out of the Second World War, when Lenin sort of seized power and all that, that was during a red four. And Lenin was born during a red four interval. Um, and then jump ahead to the Chinese uh, uh, communist revolution in 1949 that was also a black five going into red four when Mao Mao was a red four and as was Khrushchev and when Mao went to Russia in, in late 49 early 50 right after the Chinese revolution and the, the sort of the Sino-Soviet alliance communist alliance was formed that was also doing a red four and then when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, that was, again, a black five interval going into red. In fact, I think by the time the wall fell, it, 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 or, or right after, as the Soviet Union is crumbling after the wall fell, that was a black five going into a red four interval, again, in 1989 and early 1990. Mm -hmm. So it's not merely that, you know, that's this little... Uh, um, that we can connect 2014 and 2022 relative to Russian Ukrainian history, but that it goes back. I mean, think about it 1989, 1990, uh, 1949, 1950, 1917, 1918. These are the, the, the easily the, anyone would say whether you're the biggest communist or the biggest capitalist, those are identifiably uh, uh, the three most crucial periods in Russian history in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. You know, unambiguous. I mean, okay, there's the Second World War, but that's also important in the picture. Oh yeah, um, come to think of it, when when in 1941, when uh, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union and broke the the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, that was during a Black Five, going into a Red Four interval at the beginning. Uh, Pearl Harbor, when when America suddenly finds itself in alliance with the Soviet Union, with Pearl Harbor, that's going into a Red Four interval again. Mm. So even there, I've added a fourth. Uh, a very important part in in Russian history that always locks itself to this Red Four interval. And like I said, Lenin was born in the Red Four. Mao was born in the Red Four. Khrushchev was born in the Red Four. Uh, most of the Soviet leaders were were born in the Red uh, intervals. You know, uh, Brezhnev was a Red Two. Um, Stalin is unique. He's a blue two, but then th that's that's another sort of question. But even Stalin's own life um, ties a lot to uh, Venus retrograde uh, um, cycles. Right. So um, 
this is useful for just identifying phases in the Venus retrograde cycle and then being able to identify repetitions in that cycle that are spread out over time that sometimes certain countries or certain individuals get tied get locked into those being important turning points when that recurs and sometimes you can then use that and project it out in the future and know if one's coming up again that this is going to be a really important turning point and be able to to potentially make a forecast based on that exactly and um, there is something that really locks into this and and again if we just thought about you know is venus in pisces or is it in libra or is it in capricorn whatever you you i mean that's that's important in its own right but you would miss out on the the sort of the cyclical nature that you can follow over long periods of time that sort of transcend the sign boundaries in favor for this very uh, equally identifiable uh, um, boundary, you know, little uh, Venusian zodiac of sorts, you know, uh, it, it's not unlike in the same way that we take, you know, one solar revolution and break it into 12, we're taking a sort of a grander Venus cycle and breaking it into 20. Um, but it does take it outside of the abstractness or the, the astrological and some of the cliches of the astrological construct of like the zodiac signs like that and things like that and does put it or situate it in a context of just looking at slices or periods of time and um, cycles of the planets and in that way might it might be a little bit more appealing or a little bit more approachable once you get past its initial complexity to somebody like a historian that yeah. could be open to astrology if they simply understood it as the study of cycles of time. Exactly. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Um, this is useful in that capacity because we don't have to start trying to convince people, you know, that Venus in Capricorn is a very, you know, loves ambition and structure or that Venus in Libra loves love. And I mean, not that I'm poo-pooing any of that. I mean, I am a horoscopic astrologer, but we can sort of just table that element and just illustrate uh, um, something simpler uh, and more just based on 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 the the, the basic calendar properties of of, of planetary cycles and um, and it speaks volumes I think remember each interval represents only five percent of total time but even everything I've just identified for you with regard to Russia and the Red Four is really striking look just imagine for a second. Let's go back to being horoscopic astrologers for a second. What if I could tell you that, you know, all those events happened when Venus was in Pisces, you know, randomly speaking. Most astrologers would be like, okay, to have that many events and natal charts that all have Venus in Pisces, that's got to be really meaningful because it's it's finding a planet in this one really identifiable section. Well, there are 12 zodiac signs whereas I'm pulling Venus in a 20 division system, mm -hmm. which is even more sort of unique and, and, and rare, 5% of total time. And, and this is just one example of, of how this works. I mean, I can do all kinds of things with Russian and, and American and other national histories. Well, I mean, to use another one, um, you mentioned your, one of your most important articles and your first articles focus on this was Venus retrograde cycles of injustice and focusing on um, like racial issues in, in the United States being tied into Venus retrograde periods. Right. And that would be the red five interval, which you see at the bottom left of the screen. Um, the, the, the article that I wrote, um, you know, we, we can start with the, the Haitian revolution in um, 1791. 
Um, we can go to... Was, uh, it, was it Venus retrograde? Was it Venus retrograde red five? It was a red five interval. So it wasn't just any Venus retrograde. It was this specific retrograde that yeah. occurs every eight years. Right. When I wrote the article in 2007, I hadn't devised the system yet. I, I divide, devised the system in, in 2017 mm. um, because I was, I was struggling. I was always trying to explain. I mean, I had the work done on the Venus cycle, but... I was always calling what I now call the Red Five. I was calling the Venus from Virgo to Leo retrograde, which gets a little confusing, especially um, if you go back to 1791 and the Haitian Revolution. That Venus is in Libra or or maybe even Scorpio, you know. Uh, but it's it's because it gradually goes backward through time because it shifts two degrees every eight years, even though it otherwise repeats very close to where it was eight years earlier. Right. But that's what this helps to identify is. Those repetitions of the same eight-year cycle, regardless of zodiacal placement. Yeah. So, um, in that original article, I went from 1791 in the Haitian Revolution to 1831 in the Nat Turner Rebellion, a very, very important, you know, uh, race uprising, uh, a slave uprising in Virginia, uh, to eight years later in, in 1839 for the Amistad. Uh, uh, mutiny when uh, when um, some slaves, Caribbean slaves, overtook a slave ship, landed on the shores of I think Long Island, New York, and it was a big sort of event in terms of what they were going to do with these guys who who had taken control of their destiny. They landed in a part of the country that was not, uh, you know, uh, where slavery was no longer. Um, Involved, and in fact, John Quincy Adams, who had already been president, wound up being their their advocate, their lawyer in a court case that eventually saw them set free and go home to Africa. Um, and from there, I just go on and on. I, I, I for for the Red Five intervals, you can go everywhere from like um, 1919, the summer of 1919, which they call Red Summer, when there were a bunch of. Uh, racial uprisings all over the country in in Texas and Chicago, uh, Omaha, all these different places. There were just there, I think over a hundred of them over the course of a summer. They call it Red Summer. That was during a Red Five interval. Uh, but again, um, uh, you know, 1967 uh, when when there were um, a lot of you know prior to of course the famous Martin Luther King riots in April 68. That's not a Red Five, but all this sort of. Um, uh, racial uprisings in the summer of 1967 in Newark, um, in um well, there were a number of them. There were a whole bunch of them. Uh, Newark is one of the most famous ones in Baltimore. Um, they all happened in the summer of 1967. I identified all these different uh, events that that you know, the Red Five just seemed to be really central to uh, periods. I mean, obviously, American history has seen a lot of racial conflict, but there's something about the Red Red Five interval that's really sort of central to them happening in 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 mass numbers or in very sort of um, politically uh, uh, notable or influential contexts. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, sometimes they just they happen and they they end and and there's no real sort of long lasting impact. Sure. But it's identifying like echoes or rhymes in history. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And a tool for doing that. Yeah. So that was, that was an early observation I made and that was the article I wrote today. I would write about it as a red five thing, but at the time it was just, you know, I, I was doing what I could. I was trying to identify Venus in the, in the cycle. That's it's, it's for that very reason that I devised the system in the first place. So I could explain it in these terms, mm, which okay. I, which I hope gets across to people. I, I'm doing my best and I'm still working on the, the perfect version of, of explaining this all.
Yeah. So that'll be one of the next things you want to do is make videos on some of these different cycles showing the repetitions in history and, and demonstrating the coherency of that system. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. So we started talking about the Uranus return of the United States and that being important. And then we segued into the Venus retrograde, but we didn't to come bring things around to have a have a little bit of a revolution and a little bit of a return of back to the start ourselves, back to Uranus return. Um, we did that episode on your book and Uranus 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 in the United States history, you know, nine years ago, almost ten years ago in twenty thirteen. And since then, especially over the past two years, I've been starting to become increasingly more nervous about the Uranus return of the United States that's coming up yeah. as soon as it goes back into Gemini here in a few years and like in what, like 2025, 2025, yeah. 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 So we're only three years off from that right now. And it's like that's happening, but we're also having like the Pluto return of the United States right now. Um, Pluto's going to go into Aquarius here also in, in a few years. Neptune's going to go into Aries. Uh, the last time Neptune made an ingress into Aries was literally in the middle of the Battle of Fort Sumter, which began the the Civil War. Mm. Like when when the attack on Sumter began, Neptune was still in Pisces, and then by the time the battle ended the next day, it was in Aries. Okay, uh, and that's typically thought of as the you know the, the the single event that really began the Civil War. Although obviously things had been heating up prior to that. Yeah. So. Way more, <clears throat> way more than I was back in 2013 when we had that discussion, and and all of astro all astrologers have kind of commented on that and always been like, you know, whoa, I wonder what that's going to be. Um, I'm becoming increasingly nervous about it with the trajectory because the two previous instances that we have, one of them was an internal war, the civil war, and you know, the country like turning into into itself and, and fighting itself. And some of the increasing tensions that have been happening in the United States over the past several years, and um, sort of like threats to undermining the the democracy and the democratic process, and things like that, and the potential for a dictatorship or who knows. Um, but then the second instance of the Uranus return was more of an external threat of like fighting World War II and fighting a, a war on two fronts um, with. Yeah, with both Japan and Germany. Mm -hmm. So, and then more recently, we've had increasing and a return to, you know, international and world tensions with um, between Russia and the United States that we haven't seen since the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1980s. So, um, all of that stuff happening is making me increasingly nervous about the Uranus return of the United States coming up here in a few years, way more than I was, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I have to confess, even I, like when I was doing the book in 2013, I was doing it purely as a as a an exercise in you know um, explaining the history and just saying, well, okay, Uranus does this again in 2025, but in 2013, when I looked around the you know at the the world around me, I wasn't thinking. I was I was actually kind of thinking like, huh, maybe this is you know. A big can of nothing because you know things don't seem so bad that the country's going to head towards chaos and you know um, I mean even the Russia thing when the book came out Russia hadn't annexed Crimea yet so you know gee the world's in pretty decent shape maybe this is a big can of nothing right um, but yeah things happen very quickly and in those nine years uh, the further we go 
the more it seems like the book was touching on something that um, is still very, very active and likely to repeat itself again. Um, l- let me say what's consistent. I, going back to the United States and Uranus and Gemini, what really makes, what really ties the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and the Second World War together with regard to the United States. Okay, first of all, there's wars. That's, that's, but you know, if you look at US history, most of the, I, I think there's only like six or seven years in all of the 200 plus years of American history where there was no war whatsoever. If you include all, right. the, all the struggles with, with um, native tribes, uh, Spanish-American War, First World War, the United States has often been at war. Sure, but certainly those, those two stand out. Those three stand out. Three, okay. Those three stand out. What's, what's more uh, unique to those three wars is they resulted in the United States redefining what it is. Mm. It, it emerged from those wars as a totally different country to what it had been when the war began. There's, there's a transformation in place. The Revolutionary War, okay, well, obviously you got an actual republic emerging out of the Revolutionary War. Um, so not so much a, rede- well, a redefining in sense because there was a colony and suddenly it's a republic. Um, the Civil War, well, that centralized the United States, right? I mean, that's the one thing the war did. It, um, when people talk about, you know, um, um, fighting for states' rights, they're, they're generally arguing for a pre-Civil War model of the United States in some sense. Mm. Yeah. And, and the alternate history scenario where it could have been like broken up into two separate countries, essentially. Right. Right. Um, which probably, probably would have resulted in the um, Confederate states uh, uh, annexing a lot of what we call Latin America now, you know, which is one of the things they were fighting to prevent. Mm. So it was, uh, like, it was like that, but also the end of slavery during, sure. during the Civil War and that being one of the main things that it was fought, fought over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that, you know, that, that was certainly, that's certainly what the, the southern states were fighting to, to preserve. Um, the northern states, I think, were fighting mostly to just like sort of hold on to the country. And, and you know, um, I think a lot of the northern soldiers were more vested in that than in, in actually emancipating slaves. But, but obviously, emancip- the emancipation of slaves was the, the, the result, you know, uh, regardless of whether it was the intention of the northern um troops to do that. But anyway, that's we're, we're that's a whole other discussion. But yes, you got I mean certainly you got an emancipation proclamation out of the Civil War. Uh, but more broadly, you got this centralized United States government. You got a very different country than what it had, what it had been up until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the Second World War, um, you know, you had the United States was this very isolationist country. I mean, they, they got pulled into the Second World War very reluctantly. They were doing everything they could to not get involved. Well, I mean, yeah, because of due to World War One and the huge losses of that, there was like a huge sentiment of like not wanting to be involved in another world war. But then you had um, Roosevelt come along and Roosevelt like was trying to get the country ready for war for like a long time leading up to it. And I don't want to say dragging them into it, but but kind of a little bit like dragging the country into it in some ways. Yeah, um, as being an inevitability. Yeah, I mean, before Pearl Harbor, what Roosevelt did do was um, he instigated the Lend-Lease program. He was supplying uh, first Britain and then later also Russia 
with uh, with weapons and you know um, um, ships, planes, ammunition, all kinds of things that they were manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's and and Uranus's first ingress into Gemini. Um, in the summer of 1941 coincided with Roosevelt meeting with Churchill, what they called the Atlantic Charter. It wasn't actually a real charter. They didn't write anything down, but they just sort of agreed that there would be more cooperation before them. This is four months prior to Pearl Harbor. When Pearl Harbor actually happened, Uranus had now regressed back into Taurus, but it had made its first ingress into Gemini. And by the time the U.S. found itself fighting with Japan, you know, in Midway and, and all those famous battles at the beginning of their involvement, by that point, Uranus had made its second ingress into Gemini. And Uranus stayed in Gemini all through the rest of the war, and then the formation of the United Nations in 1946, and very importantly, the formation of NATO in 1949. And in fact, Uranus stayed in Gemini up until the summer of 1949, just prior to when the Soviet Union got their nuclear bomb, which at which point suddenly you had not one but two global superpowers. And then shortly after that, China, um, you know, joined in the in the picture as a as a, you know, a new communist state and a new, quote unquote, threat to um, the capitalist world order. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can see what, whatever the case, um, it, it's almost and, and it's funny, even the Revolutionary War. I mean, people talk about this, you know, the, the, the revolutionaries prior to the Revolutionary War, people like Jefferson, Washington, Benjamin Franklin, they were all pretty loyal British citizens, you know, like they didn't they, they weren't born revolutionaries. It was circumstances that sort of pulled them into the revolution and pulled them into forming a republic. They weren't. They didn't grow up thinking someday we got to get rid of the king and all this stuff. Not by any stretch. You know, the war just sort of landed on their laps because of circumstances. As with the Civil War, you know, it's not like Lincoln or any any of the the anyone in the U.S. government was trying to create a centralized uh, uh, federal state. It's just that's an outcome of what happened in the Civil War due to circumstances. And again, with the Second World War, you know, the U.S. was never trying to become a global superpower, not by any stretch. It's something that happened because of the war. Because part of it was an accident of just Europe, most of Europe being decimated after World War II and needing to like rebuild back up and America being one of the few that didn't, it didn't have any fighting on its own soil. Yeah. Yeah. So they had more money, more resources, more, you know, everything. Uh, and they were able to do that to sort of establish a kind of global peace. Um, I mean, they had ulterior motives. They were worried about communism and, and the Soviet bloc and all that stuff. But um, yeah, none of it was by design in any three of those wars. It's very Uranian. It's just, as the saying goes, shit happened. And then, you know, they just responded in these these really um, important consequences came out of it. Mm -hmm. So that's what's consistent. And if I was going to try and like forecast what these, you know, what this next decade is going to be like going from Uranus's next ingress into Gemini in 2025 to when it eventually leaves in 2032, 2033, whatever it is. Um, it, you know, um, well, I guess, you know, obviously I hope there's no war involved, but it's not hard to imagine considering where things are today, whether it's an internal civil thing or an external thing with regards to what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine and NATO. 
uh, or a little bit of both, um, or or something entirely different. Um, you know, it's kind of hard because it's kind of one of the things. Let's just say, roughly around the time of the Sibley chart and the Declaration of Independence, when Uranus is in Gemini, is it's not just Uranus there, but Mars is there in the same sign as well. And I wonder if we could make the most general statement that sort of regardless of what mm. chart you use that if you use any chart like roughly in that time frame around July of 1776 that you've got a chart with Mars and Uranus in a sign-based conjunction so every time Uranus comes back around it's also activating that conjunction and that Mars placement that's a good point um, if you look at um you know this uh, the synodic cycle of Mars um, 79 years is a really important um, marking point in the synodic cycle of Mars because you get a return within four degrees. It's the closest thing you get with Mars because the Mars synodic cycle is very asymmetrical compared to Venus's very symmetrical cycle. But within every 79 years, you'll get, like for instance, a Mars retrograde station within four degrees of wherever Mars made its retrograde station 79 years previously. So, um, Mars is going retrograde in Gemini this year. The last time it went retrograde in Mars, well, not the last time, but it, 79 years ago, it had a Mars retrograde in Gemini uh, in the last months of 1943, which is in the middle of the Second World War. Uranus is in Gemini. This is the, part, this is the point where, first of all, things really sort of... Uh, turn around with, you know, that the African part of the war ends, uh, Italy has switched sides, and the Tehran conference, where Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill meet together for the first time, the first of two times, to plan, um, amongst other things, the D-Day landings, the, the, the second European front, because Stalin's very eager for that to happen, so he's not fighting the Nazis all by himself. Um, and then 79 years before the 1943 Mars retrograde, you find yourself in 1864, which is the last months of the Civil War when Sherman is uh, burning down Atlanta and, and you know, the march through Georgia and South Carolina and basically, you know, really finishing off the, the, the South in these last months of the, of the war. Um, so those are, you know, those are two really critical periods in those wars where you had a Mars retrograde in Gemini, in other words, an extended transit of Mars through Gemini while Uranus was in Gemini. Mm -hmm. um, and those are arguably, you know, it's also during the, the, the 1864 Mars retrograde in Gemini when Lincoln wins re-election, you know, which is sort of, you know, because <laughs> things would have gone very differently if he hadn't won that election and, you know, could very well have turned out that he didn't. Um, so there's the, there is something to what you're saying. Um, sure, the Sibley chart has the Mars in Gemini, but um, actually Mar Mars's transit through Gemini, while coincident with Uranus in Gemini, has this longer sort of uh, long-standing relationship as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it adds to the um, to the Uranus transit through Gemini. Yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, so. It at the very least, we can say like major transformation of the country historically in the last three times it's happened. And also usually like major conflict comes up that's either external, internal, or some combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to my mind, it, 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 I, I would, if I'm, if I'm a guessing man, if I'm a betting man, 
which I'm not, but just if hypothetically I am, then then I would be thinking it's it's a combination of both this time. It's like the Civil War and the Second World War happening at the same time. Mm. In right. some sense, you know, not not exactly the same thing. Yeah. So I'm just animating the chart and looking at time frames. So you said 2025 is when Uranus goes in for the first time. Yeah. Like... Which will be just after the next president is inaugurated. You know, just a, within a few months after the. There it is. So early July. It's actually right after the solar return. Right. So it's like. July 4th, 2025 happens. Uranus is at 2953 Taurus. And then, bam, like July 6th, July 7th, 2025, Uranus goes into Gemini. Yeah. And uh, there's also a Saturn, Uran Saturn Neptune conjunction, and Pluto is also ingressed into Aquarius at that same time. So there's, there is a lot going on. Yeah. To be sure. Uh, a lot of people we've talked about recently, Saturn Neptune. Conjunctions being really important for Russia, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. We don't have to go into that. No, um, I'm sure it's been covered. I, I think both Watson and Austin covered it in their conversations with you. Yeah, so but it's give, absolutely it's it's absolutely consistent. Yeah, and so to give some time frames though, so 2025, mid 2025, first ingress of Uranus. It doesn't regress, right? No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It will. It will. Okay. Never mind. I'm just gonna go ahead and animate it. So that's the first ingress, mid 2025, and then it's going through Gemini for the next several years, and eventually goes into Cancer. Do you know when the final ingress is? Um, you know, I did nine years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's right around 2033. Looks like May 2033. Yeah, that makes sense. See if it retrogrades one more time. No, it's not going to get far enough There's, back. There is almost virtually always two ingresses. There's almost always a regress. Hmm. The only year I know of where there wasn't was the ingress into Capricorn in 1905. Okay. Because just because of where it was relative to the sun, you know, um, it never regressed to. Uh, Sagittarius in that instance, but that's very rare. It it almost always has two ingresses. It looks like that's so that Uranus ingress there in May, May twenty first, May twenty second, twenty thirty three. So that's the end point for for this in terms of that time frame. Yeah, got it. Okay. Well, all right. Good times. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry to cheer everyone up. Um, yeah, um, I'm trying to think of anything's related to that, but maybe that's sufficient. Well, I think the one thing I, I, I if I can, we, we were talking about 2016, the last time we saw each other, and um, we, along with the rest of anyone else, astrologer or otherwise, who thought they knew how that election was going to go. Um, now, I, I knew for a long, long time that um, Donald Trump had the sun conjunct Uranus in Gemini, with the, you know, and he was born on a lunar eclipse, so he's got the north node there, opposite the moon and the south node. I always saw that chart and thought, wow, you know, this guy is really plugged into this broader American uh, um, cycle of Uranus and Gemini. And in fact, 
I did think about putting them in this book. And the reason I didn't was because I was being very cute. This book has 84 pages. Mm. In other words, one page for, you know, it, it's supposed to represent the Venus Synodic Cycle. I thought it was being very cute. Mm. Um, but in being so cute, I was like, well, there's no point in putting Donald Trump in this book because obviously he's just like a side part to the story. It's not like the guy's ever going to be president or anything. That's just unimaginable. Right. He was like the host of The Apprentice or something at the time. Right. No, and but the other thing was when we're when we're there in 2016 trying to anticipate the election. You know, I could have I could have picked him if the election was the 2024 election because in 2016 I'm not even thinking about who wins the 2016 election. I'm thinking about who wins the 2024 election because the I knew having written the book, I knew okay, well, whoever wins the 2024 election will be inaugurated just prior to Uranus making the ingress to Gemini. Mhm. So 2016 wasn't even sort of on my radar, you know, um, and, and I was there at a conference and I wanted um, people to attend my talk. So to promote my talk, I took part in the silly um, uh, panel thing. And, and like everyone else, uh, I mean, not a single astrologer picked him. Of that panel? Of, that, of any of those. Well, yeah, of that panel or, or you know, uh, there were a lot of people um, even non-astrologers who were betting on the wrong horse. Right. Uh, but when it came to, you know, I, my eye was always on 2024. Um, so I, you know, I think um, that's another thing that, that ties into all this. Yeah. Um, one of the things on the last forecast when I was talking this and expressing some of this to Austin in the aftermath of some of the recent Supreme Court stuff and the, just the sh sudden shift towards that uh, shift in the Supreme Court and some of the decisions that are coming down there now, um, Austin tried to be, ironically, which is odd for Austin, the optimistic one in, in saying, you know, there's um, usually the country comes out better historically on the other end of the Uranus return than when it went, went into it in terms of that transformation. And when I was trying to express some of the uh, concern about like the state of democracy and other things like that, he pointed out like the rise of kind of like strongmen type figures or singular figure that like takes the country through that period. Um, and well, he was sure. optimistically pointing to like you know Roosevelt during World War II or Abraham Lincoln during mm -hmm. the Civil War, you know, which would be nice if there if there was a figure like that. Um, but just makes me nervous with like the Pluto return and the other stuff happening that what if it was like, you know, a strongman figure that's like not necessarily good for the country per se. Right. Um, I mean, Austin's not wrong, you mm -hmm. know, in terms of the way things have played out. And I'd like to be optimistic enough to think, yeah, when we get to 2033, the U.S. may very well be in a much better place than where it has been for quite some time. But holy moly, it's just, you know, what happens in between? Right. You know, yeah. I mean, if Lincoln and FDR were here right now, they tell you, you know, it's 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 hell to go through. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it was just like uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths. Yeah. yeah what yeah. happened I mean, it's, it's historically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So any of us who are still around in 2033 might have plenty of cause to rejoice. But, you know, we'll... Um, most likely because we'll have gone through something, you know, um, that would be unspeakable if we even knew what it could really be. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then just coming out of the pandemic and stuff over the past few years, 
it's been interesting seeing that because that was also obviously a real shock in terms of thinking about some of those things and assuming up until recently that they were like in the past that let's like you know plagues don't just like break out anymore we're not living in biblical times and then it's like 2020 hits and you know surprise like actually right. like stuff like that still happens not only does stuff like that still happen but i think we all learned a lot more about each other mm. in those two years than any of us really understood about yeah of like uh, of, that of, of our species of our fellow you know brothers and sisters yeah of like uh, if you're when you're watching like a zombie apocalypse movie you're like that's not realistic like and, people would act like that and it right. turns out actually yeah that's exactly right, exactly it, right. you know they always say um or it's something i've heard said that um any society is always about two or three meals away from revolution at all times hmm. um and yeah i mean i've done a lot more reading since i did Uranus USA eight years, um, whatever it was, nine years ago. Um, and I think what I understand better now, even before the pandemic hit, but all the more so now, um, is, you know, just how quickly things can go from peaceful and normal to completely bonkers in mm. no time. Right. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, look, I'm like anyone else. I want us to all survive and thrive and and be okay and and hopefully i am hopefully this conversation sounds really ridiculous a decade from now right but a decade ago when i was doing this book it seemed ridiculous to be almost you know i i thought i was fear-mongering i was worried i was concerned that i was fear-mongering that wasn't my intention but nine years ago when i did the book i was concerned like okay maybe i'm just stirring a pot that doesn't need to be stirred maybe this is all for not, although now as we're getting closer to 2025, none of this seems um, unthinkable, you know. Yeah, that was something I I keep re reflecting on a lot over the past couple of years. That I feel like that astrologers learned, the astrological community learned, is going into 2020. So much of the concern in the 20 or 30 years leading up to that, in terms of astrologers, has always been on being careful not to make overly negative or pessimistic yes. statements or interpretations of the astrological transits for fear of unnecessarily freaking people out or ne having a negative psychological impact on people yeah, doing harm i mean we right. started this conversation talking about that about the ethics of astrology and that is important and i certainly i'm not having this conversation nor did i write this book uh um blind to that risk and uh you know, I, I really do hope that's a joke. Although, yeah, because it, because we've gone through the pandemic, it no longer seems quite so taboo to speak in these terms now. Well, because what we learned from the pandemic in 2020 was was the opposite. You know, worst case, not worst case scenario, but the downside of the opposite end of if you sugarcoat stuff too much or if you downplay when you see some really heavy, tough astrological alignments coming up in the future. Um, then people can be annoyed at you for the other reason, which is like, why didn't you tell us, or why didn't right. you call it like you saw it? And if you underplay something, I don't know if I want to say that can be just as damaging, but there can be some inherent problems with that just as much as as the other side. Yeah, um, yeah. I my hope is, you know, anyone watching your podcast is an astrology student. Um, part of learning astrology, not unlike me sort of freaking myself out for 12 years, worried about my progressed solar eclipse, you know, and I, I see this time and again with 
astrology students is um, it can be it, it can trigger a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people say that that's a, sort of a part of the process is, right. is dealing with the anxiety you have over your limitations and, and speculating on what terrible things can happen to you because you've got this or that transit coming up or this or that progression coming up. That's unfortunately like if you're if you're going to make the, the grown up decision to study astrology. You're walking into territory where, to some degree, you're you're you know you're you're walking into that uh, that zone, um, and you're going to do yourself a little bit of harm, you know, justified or not. You're going to uh, freak yourself out, um, right? Because sometimes knowing the worst case scenario, you can expect the worst case scenario, but it could be less severe than that once you actually experience it. Oh, sure. That happens all the time. That probably mm-hmm. happens more often than the than the reverse, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I just want to make these uh, sober observations and in the name of um, exploring astrology and, and how far astrology can go. And I want to have these conversations um yeah openly uh i don't you know i don't want uh, it's i'm i'm not i don't want to talk about uh, um terrible outcomes just for the sake of it or because i want to freak myself or anyone else out um just you know we're we're studying the cycles of history mm-hmm. and um history's got some really horrible bits in the past and there's no reason we like you said like you were saying about the pandemic you know there's no reason to think that you know all the terrible things that have happened in the past have somehow been transcended that we're somehow this different species unfortunately right or or that like things like there was some idea even just a few years ago that like globalism had solved the uh threat for there ever to be like major international wars or conflicts because international economies are too interlinked at this point for countries to ever consider you know, doing something that would that would threaten that just because of the um, economic uh, catastrophe it would cause, or or self harm that it would cause on any country to do something like that. But even that's now fallen apart over the course of the past year or two. Yeah. Um, well, it was. You know, there's there's um, first of all, the reason we have that global order is because of what happened the last time Uranus was in Gemini. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the United States created that global order. Um, in order to counteract the, the threat from the Soviet bloc. And, you know, to the point where even, you know, eventually most of the Soviet bloc countries wound up joining NATO um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, that system that system worked for a long time. Or and, even the creation of the UN, you said, was also Uranus and Gemini? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but NATO has, I mean, NATO's got more of a sort of strictly strategic and military uh, uh, model, you know. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. The UN, you know, also facil- facilitated so much of that um, that peace, you know. And virtually everyone alive, you know, even the, okay, you know, baby boomers, they, they had to go through Vietnam, but that's nothing compared to, you know, the, the apart from the individuals who suffered, um, nothing compared to the kind of things we're talking about now. Most of us have really lived through uh, um, largely an era of, of peace and prosperity. And um, that's going to be shaken up. If we're ever going to get back to a peaceful model, um, it's going to be because we have to sort things out. Between the years 2025 and 2033, particularly. 
Mm -hmm. Although obviously we're already sort of in the throes of that. Yeah. As, as was the case in the other instances, you know, I mean, um, Uranus and Taurus was, you know, the, the Spanish civil war and the, the early part the the non-American, <coughs> excuse me, the non-American part of the, um, second world war and Uranus was in Taurus, um, in the 1850s, for instance, when the U S, uh, um, forced Japan, you know, into trade. That's a really good point, though. You were talking about the, the non-American part of World War II, yeah. which is, you know, things like, um, you know, Poland being annexed by yeah. by Germany. Yeah. the Well, Germany and Russia. Right. Um, yeah. And the Russian war with Finland and um, the Battle of Britain, which is obviously huge. The invasion of France, Belgium, Netherlands, Denmark, mm -hmm. Norway. So there's like a buildup and obvious like precursors of things were already getting going by the time the U.S. got involved when Uranus went into Gemini. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and and there are ways, you know, uh, bleeding Kansas was Uranus and Taurus prior to the Civil War, and you can think of bleeding Kansas, bleeding Kansas as being a precursor to the American Civil War. In the same way, you can think of the Spanish Civil War, which was uh, 1936 to 39, and then the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and the annexation of Poland and everything we just mentioned. All that Uranus and Taurus stuff leads up to America's involvement when Uranus goes into Gemini. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, there is a continuum here, you know, um, just because we're looking to 2025, it doesn't mean we're not already staring this thing in the face in some way. Right. Or that the precursors leading up to it aren't already happening that will become more clear in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we've got that big eclipse for some reason that came up yesterday, but then that in 2024 is the next great American eclipse where we had that one back in 2017, which is just a few months after, in 2017, just a few months after Trump was elected. And that is sort of, I always think of that eclipse as sort of, um, you know, indicating the beginning of his presidency. Uh, I think of that eclipse as being exactly when I designed the Venus synodic cycle model that we were looking at not long ago. Okay. Well, that <laughs> it was, was literally, it was at the end of August of 2017. But that, anyway. that was the more important thing. That uh, obviously. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so that we've got another one coming up in 2024 that again is going to be visible and will like cross, go across large parts of, of the U.S. Yeah, and it's at 19 Aries, the exaltation degree of the sun. Mm. Um, take what you will of that—a solar eclipse on the exaltation of the sun. Okay. Yeah, the last one was in Leo. Right? Yeah, with yeah. Regulus, as I recall. Right. And ended up being like right on Trump's ascendant, which ended up in retrospect being something that would have been a good indication for his ascension at the time, um, even though it was late and it occurred like six months into his presidency. Right. And it, my Mercury is on Regulus, so that's the, that eclipse was on my Mercury when the far more important creation of the Venus Synodic cycle model. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, Sorry, when, folks. Leo's got a Leo. When the historians look back on this period. Right. Trump schmump. All right. So um, that's pretty pretty good. We've covered quite a quite a bit today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of like a lighter like topic to end <laughs> it on, rather than just like the impending uh, global or at least country related. Things. Yeah, I, I know we want to talk about George Lucas, but I think that's a whole other day. 
yeah, a whole other thing. Um, eccentric astrologers we've met over the years. We touched on a few of them already. That might be a whole other thing. Um, why don't we end then to circle back around to the very, very beginning? We talked a little bit because I was I was always so interested by your no prep consultation and how you did years of that, just like chop, oh, yeah. chop wood, carry water, almost like Karate Kid style astrology training of like yeah. no prep consultations and just doing those back to back to back. How many would you do in like a day, let's say on average? A good day was maybe three or four. Three or four consultations. Okay. Um, over the past several years, though, you switched to doing consultations in person and that's yeah. been a major part of your focus. Yeah. Um, in, in um, Okay. Well, actually, but let me go into the astrology of this because it works into the Venus retrograde and, and stuff, but this is a really great story. Um, in June of 2015, uh, prior to the Red 5 Venus retrograde, which is Venus retrograde in Leo, which, uh, you know, I'm not going to go into my whole life story, but that retrograde is always huge in my life. Always huge in my life. And it's always been in your rising sign? Exactly. Okay. Um, Venus, Venus and Jupiter were conjunct uh, on Regulus uh, in late June of 2015. And I saw that there was going to be this big astrology conference in Cape Town, South Africa. And I saw some of my friends like Sam Reynolds and Michelle Gould were going to be there. Mm -hmm. So that day, uh, Michelle got in touch with me and she said, Nick, I want you to know I'm trying to get you added to the speakers list for this conference in South Africa. Um, but the speaker list is full and the woman who's running it is being kind of obstinate about adding new speakers. Um, that remark gets really funny in a minute. And I said to Michelle, she'll, she'll back this up. I think I have the, you know, it's on Facebook Messenger or something. I said to Michelle, Michelle, you're telling me this on a day when Venus and Jupiter are conjunct Regulus. Um, and I have a Venus-Jupiter conjunction in my birth chart. I started studying astrology during a Venus-Jupiter conjunction in 1995. I said, so Michelle, you and I both know I am going to be at that conference which was an unbelievably arrogant thing to say in June of 2015, at which point I, I was not on the speakers list. Hmm. Two months later, at the end of August, one of the speakers backed out of the conference, and I was suddenly added to the speakers list, and I was contacted by the woman who was organizing it, a very nice woman named Anna Carapashano. And uh, she invited me to the conference, and I agreed to come, and in early November I showed up. And we were there for two weeks, at this beautiful outdoor conference uh, close to Cape Point. And um, Anna and I uh, spent a lot of time together and got along very well. Uh, very well. And uh, so well that two months later, we all found ourselves um, at a conference in Calcutta, India, including Anna and myself and Michelle and Richard Fiddler, who had organized the conference with Anna. And after the conference in Calcutta, the four of us traveled all around India. We went to Varanasi, we went to Goa, we just had an amazing time. And over the course of that trip, Anna and I became romantically involved. And it went so well that when we went home, we agreed that we wanted to stay together. So in April of 2016, I met up with Anna in Paris and we had a lovely five days in Paris. And then I flew to Cape Town with her and I basically moved to Cape Town then. Um, and I've since uh, um, married Anna. She's now my wife. <laughs> um, that obstinate woman who didn't want to add me to the speakers list. Um, so Anna has this holistic center close to Cape Point, where the Astrology Restored Conference was held 
in, in November of 2015. Um, and I was suddenly, having moved to Cape Town, I was able to avail myself of something I'd never had in my whole astrology career, which was a beautiful space to have in-person astrology consultations. Mm -hmm. It was something I always wanted. I mean, I became an online astrologer really out of necessity. Um, it, it was just the only way to go at the time. But, I, you know, I had this beautiful spot and I spent the next few years um, doing in-person readings. And I, I started doing the things I had always wanted to do, like preparing for consultations as opposed to just doing the jazz musician thing. Right. Because I enjoy it because it's, it's a, you know, and, and it's a smart thing to do, even if you do have the ephemeris memorized. What are the, some of the things you do for prep? Um, I look at um, the, the prior solar return, like the, the present solar return and the next solar return. So mm -hmm. this year's and next year's, uh, look at whatever, you know, perfected signs and planets are involved and, and get that all sort of sorted out. Um, I look at whatever eclipses are coming up. Um, I look at the person's uh, secondary progress chart, you know, progress stations like we were discussing on an episode a few months ago. Um, all that kind of stuff. The transit's coming up for the coming year. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, you know, um, that, that's the, the meat of it anyway, of how I prepare. Mm -hmm. um, you know, half an hour, maybe a bit more. So I got used to doing that. And then, you know, and that worked great for about four years. Uh, really loved it. Really loved doing in-person consultations, you know, and having the chance to experience them. And, and really falling in love with astrology all over again. You know, not that I'd fallen out with it, but it had just sort of, I'd been doing the same thing for a long time. And then I'd had that episode where my health was rough. And so I couldn't, I couldn't be as passionate. It was just wasn't physically possible. Um, and there's something about sitting down and doing consultations with somebody with a, a complete stranger, applying the techniques and then having them tell you and validate that, that where astrology really comes alive in a way that's hard to explain or convey. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I had always been doing, you know, prior to this, I had always been doing consultations online, but it was always by like phone or Skype. It wasn't video. I was never looking the person in the eye. It was a disembodied voice and, you know, on a phone or an ear earphones or something. Um, so suddenly really having that human interaction would really made a difference. I found, um, you know, and then COVID happened. So I couldn't really do that anymore. And so I, I, you know, got a new website up and, and I've been doing zoom consultations, which is still, I mean, I'm, I'm loving it and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not doing the jazz musician thing anymore. I, I prepare all my consultations, you know, the online ones, but now they're video ones. So I, I'm still looking the person in the eye, even if I'm not in the same room with them. So, um, even though it's like, it's a shame to have that other thing slip through my fingers, maybe, you know, hopefully at some point it, it sort of, you know, comes back my way. Um, but it, it, it was another really beautiful and wonderful part of, of, um, my evolution, the evolution of my practice is, is having the chance to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful and that's brilliant. And it's like some of the things you'll ask in a consultation I know is, you know, somebody, if there's an upcoming thing that's coming up and somebody's asking about it and it's like, for example, we know next summer there's going to be that same Venus retrograde in Leo, right? The red five. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll, you'll say, you know, what happened eight years ago during this mm -hmm. time frame, and you know, they'll say in some instances, wow, this was a really major important turning point and this is what happened. And then you'll say what happened eight years before that yeah. under the same retrograde. And sometimes if there's a pattern that lines up, you can kind of extrapolate 
from that what will happen in the future? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and particularly, especially um, when I'm when I'm reading for astrology students. I mean, in, it, it, in Cape Town, that wasn't so much the case. I really was getting people sort of off the street, so to speak, um, ordinary folks who who were coming to me for consultations. Online, I tend to get a lot more astrology students. For instance, you know, the viewers of your podcast are, are you know, this one source. Um, and that synodic cycle thing is really useful, too, just because you're giving it to people who are learning their astrology and you're giving something that they can always use, you know, long after they'll still be able to use it. If they're still alive 40 years from now, they can still be looking at their synodic cycles. And really, and the older you get, the more you can really appreciate how the pattern holds mm -hmm. and how it evokes certain themes that just keep coming up in a lifetime. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, all right. Well, uh, where you're still doing consultation, your, your books are open. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm available for bookings. Nick Dagan, bestastrologer.com slash consultations. Um, it's very easy to book me online and, uh, I'm loving doing it. It's going really well. And, uh, yeah, anyone who's interested can come see me. Cool. Well, yeah, people should check out your website, nickdaganbestastrologer.com. And you're also active. You have like Twitter and Facebook and everything, right? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Facebook, I don't do that much astrology stuff. That's more just sort of, you know, pictures of my daughter and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, um, sometimes I do things there as well. Um, Twitter, I, I'm not like the world's most uh, prolific tweeter right uh twit um but but i'm working on it <laughs> do you remember what your handle is there if you look for nick dagan best you'll find me on twitter or okay. facebook that's it's easy with the three names cool All that's right. why i use the three names actually <laughs> right because then yeah I, I never called myself nick dagan best until google was invented and, and i realized nick and nick best, best are both words in the english language so yeah. using my middle name which is unique and it's just sort of allowed me to be googleable yeah, you don't run into issues like I do, where there's like an MMA fighter, Chris Brennan, right. who's, <laughs> whose middle, whose name is like Chris the West Side Strangler Brennan. Yeah, I thought that was you. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, previously, I've got a really good friend named Jay Cutler. He's an actor. He's an old old friend of mine. Uh, but yeah, there's there's um, a wrestler named Jay Cutler, I think, or a bodybuilder or something like that. And back in like 2003, I, I sent my Jay Cutler, a link of jaycutler.com. And then Jay wanted to have his own website. And he said to me, Nick, can, can you take down that website now? And I'm like, what? You thought that was a joke? You thought I designed a whole website just to make fun of your name? No, that's a real dude. That's a real website. Right. Anyway, yeah, I know a few of you guys with, who are unfortunate enough to have these common names. Yeah. Or a couple of years ago, I got an invitation to the uh, AA conference in the UK um, but they sent it to a plumber named Chris Brennan. <laughs> and luckily, the plumber didn't accept the invitation. And I later found out during a Mercury retrograde that there had been a miscommunication. But well, that would have been funny if he turned out to be a better astrologer than you. Yeah, he just shows up and gives a talk. <laughs> and everyone's like, this is kind of weird avant garde talk for Chris Brennan. But yeah. Well, you know, there is, there is a historian named Nicholas Best. He's actually okay. really good. He writes about like the First World War. I've got one of his books. And there's a couple others I intend to read. His name is Nicholas Best, which is crazy. Right. So yeah, even I'm not safe. I don't know if he has a website, but I just I happened to come across his books. And... Okay. 
well, people should not accidentally buy his books. And hopefully, at some point, you'll have uh, the revised version of the, the Ur- second edition of Uranus book. It'll it'll either be like just a second edition Uranus USA, or this, the bigger plan was to have a book called What's Up Uranus, which incorporates Uranus USA along with the stuff I was talking about. Russia and France, but I just got to see how the size works out. Hmm. Uh, because if it winds up being like too thick, then I'll have to break it up. Right. Cool. All right. Well, I'll be looking forward to it. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. All right. And thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, and Jake Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrology podcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the AstroGold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io. There's also a major astrology conference happening this year that's being hosted by the International Society for Astrological Research. And that's happening August 25th through the 29th, 2022 in Westminster, Colorado. You can find out more information at isar2022.org. 